Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. Episode 50, Spring Season Ender 2021. Looking back at me, one of the one of the guys that got this whole thing started, Ultra Four, King of the Hammers, one of the founders, Jeff Noel, Jefferson Noel. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Wyatt, and congrats on uh, 50 episodes of the Talent Tank. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, you're a milestone guy, and so I knew when I uh, you know was going after you, I've charted it out, and then we just happened to have that clubhouse session, and I had your name on the list, and uh, we had that first clubhouse session for the Moab race, and uh, you stayed on afterwards, and you made a comment like, hey, I'm always game. I'm game for that, and I was like, oh, yes, this is happening. Yeah, I've been listening for a long time. You've had some really great stories on here that I've really enjoyed. You know, I, I think lately the, uh, the Brad level one was really good. Learned a few things, but, uh, you know, dad is probably my favorite. Oh, Gotta have, you know, that was the, that was one of the best episodes. I really enjoyed it. It was a trip down memory lane and I got to learn a few things. So hopefully we can live up to the, uh, to what everybody else has done, which always cracks me up on some of these like guys that absolutely know every, what I would believe, you know, being a Texas guy and not a West coast guy where, you know, you and Wayne lived in Menifee. You're you lived in Menifee. You lived a couple miles apart in Menifee. And I knew you guys knew each other. You're over there with some regularity, but when someone like you was telling me things that about Wayne that you didn't know, I'm like, wow, that's pretty dang cool. Yep. It was, that was a great episode. And Wayne's been a great friend and, enjoyed uh his uh family and and growing up through racing with him it's been awesome we will get into gosh all the cr- chronology and i'm really kind of excited about where this is going to go because it's not necessarily racing centric because there's going to be some history here but i think there's some really cool uh mental challenges uh, uh that i w- that want to discuss with you and i know you have interesting takes on but um but today here we are we're sitting you know 2021 this is you know spring and Episode 50 of the talent tank. It's coming up on a two year old program, which is crazy. That means you're the 50th guy or lady gal that has been a pillar within the ultra four community, either from racer promoter and ultra working for ultra four being a sponsor, being a vendor. And there's no end in sight. I mean, you're at 50 and there's, there's another couple hundred, right. Of just amazing individuals making new stories every single day, every single race, every single night in the shop. Yep. there. Uh, uh, that's the beauty of it. And you get a whole new crop coming in. You know, my son is building a Jeep right now in, 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 inside and outside of my shop. He's doing a lot of the work outside because he can't get the thing in. There's not space for it and painting and doing all that. So you, it's awesome to see the next generation coming up and carrying the torch. Yeah, this is, this is all fun. So you are, you know, today working for Lincoln electric you live up in the Reno, Nevada area. I believe you are involved with, if I remember correctly, and this goes back a long, a long ways, we've known each other for many years, but you went to work for Torchmate, which I think most of us are familiar with Torchmate, certainly in the old days, but it was uh, Bill Kuntz, big sponsor of, uh, of off-road. He, he raced regularly. He was, you know, sponsor with, the, he raced with the levels. Jesse Haynes went to work for him at one point. They built that TTB car. There's just a lot of folks around the Torchmate circle. 
And then Torchmate hit a threshold. They hit a plateau where Lincoln Electric, they popped up above the clouds and Lincoln Electric bottom, you know, red welders. They snagged you up and you're working there now. And I believe you do stuff still in cutting systems. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I started off my relationship shortly after King of the, I left King of the Hammers. I started up a little uh, marketing agency that was focused on racing and off-road. And uh, so we had some good clients, Kawasaki. We worked with them, the Off-Road Business Association and Torchmate. And so Bill was contracting with me to kind of manage some of their race uh, program. Then after Lincoln purchased, we stayed on board for a while. And then uh, Lincoln offered me a full-time gig. So went to work for Torchmate, started off with just some basic marketing and uh, block and tackle work for them and kind of grew through the organization. And and at this point, I think I've held every front end of the house job within Lincoln or excuse me, within Torchmate, including I even managed the business for a little while uh, two years ago. So just a tremendous opportunity to grow within Lincoln. And uh, today I still manage a group uh, for marketing for Torchmate. We've got a lot of structural steel stuff that we're responsible for. I've got a team of people all over the world uh, that work in marketing and product development. So my newest gig uh, with Lincoln is uh, we're focused on product development. They moved our product development over to the marketing function for for the cutting products. And so I've got a few product managers that uh, report to me and we're just trying to build some really exciting new products. So when we were you know, working to schedule this up, you told me you had some timing constraints because I think you were managing a team that's maybe in Europe or you were on a different schedule. So you're having to be up really early in the morning, but also late night. Is that still going on? Oh yeah. Yeah. My days start typically about 5 a.m., sometimes a little earlier and they go until four or five in the afternoon. So we're pumping out a lot of hours right now. We just purchased a, a new organization in Austria and I'm part of the integration team for that. So we're bringing them on board and pretty excited about it. It's automation, robotics, uh, robotic welding and assembly or structural steel. Well, that's super badass. I have a torch myself. I absolutely suck at it. You know, you see guys, they just think in that three-dimensional cut world and in X, Y axis, my head just doesn't work that way, but I do have a torch mate. And so I took a polish up course. I actually drive by the Lincoln facility here in Houston every day twice a day, once each way. And they have a, they have a pretty sweet little building. They've got a little classroom in there. And then they've got a big shop in the back with a lot of test equipment. And, uh, and yeah, they had a, gosh, I almost say it was a four day course. It was a multiple day course. Who's your main trainer. You said his name. I definitely remember. I feel like like Spencer. Was it uh, Jake, Jake Reed or Iggy? Iggy. It was Iggy. That's who it was. So is, is Iggy still with you guys? Oh yeah. Yeah. He's the face of Torchmate. He does all of our video tutorials and our marketing videos and stuff. So I'm really fortunate. I was able to build a a full video production team uh, in Reno. So we shoot a lot of video. We're doing, always doing a lot of video stuff, which is the wave of the future. You know, everybody, nobody wants to read a book. They just want to watch a video. Yeah. And then you can go back and hit pause and back up if you missed it. And some, and that's really been what helped me, but I will tell you, uh, yeah. Iggy was awesome. Like I said, I, I sat through, I want to say it was three or four days of courses with Iggy and, you know, looking at the new system and, you know, my system at this point is, gosh, I want to say it's like a 2010 or a 2011 model. So it's, it's a decade old. It still cuts great, but you know, I, I don't use it remotely to its potential. And maybe I use it once every two months. It's not very, it's not very often. He shows me the new model, the new 4,400 that was sitting there and working through that. And I was like, 
wow, I need this. I really need this. And then like, he gives me the, pr- the, the price on it. I was like, well, I don't need this. I don't need this. <laughs> yeah. You know, for those that are uh, paying attention, you might see the, the, my thumbprints on the 4,400, uh, with the name, it's a little bit of a nod to uh, our legacy. So there was some pushback when I, when I picked the name for that series, everybody's like, why are we calling it a 4,400? And I said, Oh, I just think it's a great number. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I did, I can see the connection. I certainly associated in my head, what, but I didn't know that there was a, well, now we know there, there there's the big Easter egg. Uh, yeah, those yeah. are, and th- th- those, those machines are something else. And they've taken, you know, just CNC plasma cutting has taken, you know, our genre of motorsports, all motorsports to just this next level. And then being able to get them, you know, Torchmate taking them to the point where you could, you know, the hobby guy could get one in his, in his own garage and have one. And that, I mean, you still have the ability to take a, you know, a hand plasma and a grinder or, or a torch and a grinder or, you know, a bandsaw and a flap disc and still create, but to get rep, you know, if you're doing, you know, a set of 16 tabs, you want them all to look the same. Yeah. You know, back in the day when we were getting 25 and $30,000 for a car that was built, that was one thing today. These cars are a hundred thousand dollars and they're just, if it looks like some garage built hack shit, it's not going to fetch that. It's, it's just not. So, uh, what Torchmate did for, you know, pirate and then what it did for kind of king the hammer stuff man remember when they used to have a, a table on the lake bed oh yeah yep yeah it's Sold a lot of tables down there i mean that's really a testament to bill coon's vision I, he's you know he was the one that pushed that and really had this idea that everybody can have a, a machine in their garage and torchmate's been around a long time his dad started the business uh, i think it was 1979 when they started selling pentagram kits out of the back of popular mechanics so been around a long time. I think they really pushed the envelope and, and Lincoln brought a lot to the table and, and opened up doors to develop new things. And, you know, it's, uh, they got 11,000 employees around the globe or just about 11,000 employees. So you get a lot of opportunity to, to meet really, uh, smart people when it comes to this industry. And the thing I like about Lincoln is they don't really diversify out of the industry. They're really focused on putting together, uh, an acorn to oak platform for somebody that's into manufacturing. So, you know, they can help you if you got a construction business, they can help you if you've got a, a lights out manufacturing business, and they can help you if you're just a guy with a dream in your garage that's working on the floor with a vice and a grinder like you're talking about. So they got something for everybody. I'm going to have to send you an invoice for the advertising you're getting here. <laughs> <laughs> nah, just a great company. I really believe in them and uh, they got a great history. I'm fully with you there. Like I said, I've been very happy with my piece of equipment and I needed, you know, a little touch up training session. And, uh, I got an email from you guys and I had a window in my schedule. I went and Iggy was the man. I really appreciate the guy. And I know you can pick up the phone and call, uh, your tech support. It's all, you know, really good and set up. Let's actually talk about ultra four. And, and the reason I've got you on, right. What is, and we've talking about current affairs for you, basically life, life after racing, like that it exists. That's number one in my book. You're kind of like an older gypsy, you know, you're like an older Kyle Seglin. You know, you like you, you have the, this beautiful brain, great human, and you apply it. But at the end of the day, you're always doing something that is a little bit different and off from everybody else. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so I guess we're, we can go anywhere you want with this, Wyatt. You know, I think it was right around the time of the OG 13 
event, I will call it, or non-event. I was actually planning to be there. Dave and I had made these plans. Before we jump there, sure, go back to the exact genesis. Like, were you guys sitting at a, a bar with a with a napkin and you wrote it down on the back, or as talking to Randy Slauson, Slauson said, "Hey, David said, you know, they were they were on." Uh, whatever his Toyota on 31s on wrecking ball or somewhere. And in, in, in Randy said, we basically lapped him three times. And David said, you know, that was like the inspiration. It was like, well, why do we do this trail? Why don't we just see how, if we can do all the trails? Yeah. So the one thing I would just, my disclaimer to this, and I'm really, I'm really big on studying this topic right now is perception, right? So everybody's history is going to be a little different. And my disclaimer is, is that my history is probably a little different than some of the others history, because it's what I remember bits and pieces. Oh, absolutely. And, and perception really kind of drives that. So what I would say is uh, it goes back to when Dave and I met, we were, my wife and my brother and his wife were promoting what was called CRCA, the California Rock Crawlers Association. And we're going to talk about that here in the future as we get into chronology. You know, there was a group of people, Bart Dixon comes to mind, Carrie Steiner is another. There was a group of people that I've just four-wheeled with. For our part, we weren't really in that group of people weren't really in the loop with the Pirate 4x4 crowd. There was all these little factions or tribes, if you will, based around clubs. And so everybody had their own little deal. But but what we like to do was, you know, we would go out to the hammers in the summertime when there was nobody around on a Friday afternoon after work or something. You just go run trails and we just pick a trail, go run it and come back. And then, you know, get you'd be back at one, two in the morning and you pack up or drink a couple beers around the fire and then go home in the morning. So we were run, trying to run trails pretty fast back then. There's like Lost Coyotes Indian Reservation. Scott Hartman and I were in a Jeep club together. We used to spend a lot of time there. And we would go out on night runs and, and run pretty fast. Usually it always happened after you had a few beers in you and, you and you'd go out on a night run and shenanigans would happen. But this idea of going trail racing, if you will, the, the folks at Avalanche Ranch, Weaver, Mike Weaver, I think he was doing an Avalanche Ranch race with XRA in the early days. He had the 24 hours on the hammers events. So this idea of bringing the excitement of Baja into rock crawling was always interesting to me. So, you know, Dave and I uh, met through my uh, stepmom, Noe. We got together and we're talking about some ideas. I, I'm still kind of formulating this idea for a virtual racing platform. And, and Dave and I got together to talk about how could you do this? And, you know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, that didn't exist at all. We didn't know what apps were. And Dave was the one that said, look, instead of trying to make this so complicated, why don't we just put on a race and, and go do the race? And uh, that kind of was kind of just set aside. It was like, hey, that's a great idea. Uh, until Dave kind of said, look, I just want to do it. Let's just do it. You know, unfortunately, I had some issues with the business I had at the time. I wasn't able to attend the OG 13. That's a whole nother story where I had to back out the day before and not show up because I was dealing with some business issues. But um, that's kind of how it happened. I mean, it really was not much more than just an idea on a on the napkin. I think we were at an Applebee's or a Chili's or something like that in San Bernardino where we got together and just started spitballing ideas. And the next thing you know, the King of the Hammers happens. And you said, uh, I've heard you say this, you know, OG 13 and, you know, JT let us all know, you know, there was only 12 of them, but you push back on that and you say, no, there really was 13. It was Dave was number 13 out running around in front, trying to keep everybody 
That's my feeling. Uh, you know, I, if anybody ever asked me, there's 13 and Dave would be the 13th guy. So he was part of that OG tribe or, or group, if you will, that, uh, made it happen. So there's 13 in my mind. And I'll be more than happy to take that 13th spot to King of the Hammers. If I ever want to race, if, uh, if he's not interested in it. So, Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, I think you should when you line up a car and, uh, and, and figure it out. I mean, today, you can get in a UTV and they'll let you run, right? Yeah, that was part of my exit agreement. So I do have a standing invitation for King of the Hammers whenever I want it. So I don't have to qualify. Oh, there you go. You get to write your rules. So that was uh, 07, then 08, 09, 010. And then you exited. When did you exit? About 11, 12, somewhere in there? I think 11. I got to look at my notes. I can't really remember, but I think it was around 11. Yeah, 2011. And that was shortly after the, uh, the race in 2011. I mean, that was a shock now hindsight, looking back and even you, you, you have in perspective and retrospect on this, which is always interesting uh, to have that conversation. Now at the time, was it you, you approached Dave to buy him out or he, he wanted you out. What was kind of the, as we look back at it, you know, wounds have healed and band-aids have been pulled off and what was kind of the, I don't know, the genesis of, well, it wasn't that clean. You know, there was anybody that's worked with Dave knows that it can be difficult at times. And and looking back on it, I would tell you, I wish I was more mature in business at the time to maybe check some of my emotions, but we fought like cats and dogs and we had some famous fights. Uh, We actually left Bart Dixon standing in the middle of the desert in the summer with no water and took off in his truck because we didn't want to fight in front of him. Yeah, and I, I don't remember if we went back, picked him up or he walked back to camp or what, but he was pretty sore about the whole thing. We had some pretty famous fights and the 2011 race was especially difficult, you know, with BLM permits and all these new safety rules that had to be implemented. You know, it just was a case where I, I no longer wanted to have a partner. You know, the I don't want to dig up bones or pull up baggage, but that whole year, that whole season, we had launched the uh, There was a lot of trying episodes, I would say. We launched the race up in Reno, the Stampede, and it was just a, it was a difficult year for growth. And, you know, I wasn't in a position where I wanted to have a partner anymore. So I asked uh, to buy out Dave and and Dave, you know, said, look, I'm not interested in selling, you know, either we're going to work this out or, or I'll make you the same offer you're making me. And I accepted his offer and and left the organization. So I remember, so my daughter was born you know, like seven days before that race. So I wasn't at the 2011 KOH and, you know, is this kind of transpired and made its waves through, uh, Facebook was still for the most part infancy. There was still a little bit of a pirate, but when that news reached, you know, the rest of us that you guys had uh, part of ways, it was, it was like, Oh my gosh, the world's ending. And it didn't. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's gone on. They was taken ultra four to where we see it today. I'm kind of almost a loss for words. Uh, he's a big idea guy and everyone will tell you that. And he's done some just absolutely amazing things. Do you think if you were, if, if it gone the other way, you know, this, uh, alternate reality where Mr. Destiny happens and it's, you ended up with it and Dave walks away. Where do you think ultra four sits today? You know, with the different management styles, different idea styles, what's your take on where you would have gone with it? I don't think it would be nearly as big as it is today if I had taken the helm. I'm a lot more conservative. 
you know, I, you know, we've talked about this offline a few, you know, over the years, why I, you know, the, the business was health was healthy when, uh, I was there, it was solvent. We paid our bills on time. I, I don't know what it is now, but that's a big deal to me is to make sure that, uh, you know, you've got enough capital to keep going and be able to do the next event. So we were always in a pretty good spot while I was there. And again, I don't know what it is now, but, you know, growth costs money. I know that. And uh, that that business has grown tremendously. There's a lot of choices I, that he's made that I think have been very successful that I just wouldn't have, frankly, had the guts to do. I mean, yeah, uh, the guy yeah. the guy goes for it. There's no he doubt does. about that. He, he does, you know. And, and yeah, we've, again, talked about working with Dave is a... Uh, uh, trying and difficult and uh, you know even you know on my side just being media covering covering the organization uh has been you know interesting and trying but i give him kudos he's done he's done something else i'm always curious to see uh where we would have been uh had, had you been there and uh and your take on that and not saying that you were better or worse or dave was better or worse it was just you know it's sometimes you know you like a coke and sometimes you like a pepsi yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'd say I feel very blessed for that opportunity to grow something like that, to have an idea and, and to see it come and become what it is. But, you know, there's a price that's paid that goes with that. I, I'd like to think I have a very strong marriage after almost 31 years. I'm not sure that my marriage and family would have come out in the same position had I still been basically being a carny, you know, chasing racing all over the country. So, you know, that's a trade-off that I'm, I'm satisfied with. I, you know, I'm very, very happy that it's done what it's done. The, the relationships that I was able to build, you know, I think that's what I miss more than anything about racing. It's not so much the thrill or, or the adrenaline rush of racing. It's more about the relationships that that race community has. I mean, you just don't see things like a competitor, willing to give you a complete axle assembly or differential or drive shaft or give you a wheel and tire off of his car while he's racing. You know, you just don't see that everywhere. And, and I think that's, what's great about ultra four, that community. The thing that I was most proud of is unlike any other kind of racing that I know of in those early years, when the winner came across the finish line, he didn't leave, stayed there, stayed there for hours and hours and hours, welcoming everybody across the finish line. And, you may recall that we did the same thing. When we went to best in the desert, you know, every other racer would peel out and there'd be all these ultra four guys crowded around the finish line rooting for the guys they're competing against. It's the greatest thing in the world to me is that community was so tight and, you know, I'm, I'm not as close to it now, but I suspect it's still pretty tight. Yeah, no, it really has. And you know, you talk to guys like Lauren Healy and Lauren will tell you the day that turns into not that is the day that he hangs it up. And I think a lot of other competitors have that same that same thought and same mindset that, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still some secrets, right? There's still some secret sauce and some setup, but by sure. and large, it's, uh, it's still open versus you go to a drag race and they share nothing. There's, you've got to hire one of their crew guys to, to, to get in the secret sauce. And, and even then that's unlikely going to happen. So let's get into Jeff Knoll. Let's, let's get into where you're from. So you're from Menifee, California. You brought up your wife. You've been married to Angie for, you say 31 years. It'll be 31 years this month. Well, yeah. Congratulations on that. And then growing up in Menifee, that's an interesting area. Like when, you know, the first time I was there was with you. I'm riding around in a truck with you. It's 2009 Vegas to Reno is on. I don't remember exactly the setup of how I ended up in that mix. 
but I do know I buy a plane ticket. I fly to Ontario, California. So you pick me up at the airport for, for a Vegas room. You've got your, your, your super duty. It's all, you know, chase trucked out and you drive me through Menifee and over to Wayne Israelson's to dad's place. And the thing that I was shocked about around the Menifee area was it looked like that that's where they filmed wild west shows from the sixties and seventies. These like rock, you know, these rock formations just next to the road. And they were the big, huge boulder rocks and all those things. I'm like, well, no wonder you guys were all in a rock crawling because you didn't have to go anywhere. You just happened to have a, you grew up in a house that had the, the best you rock course right in your backyard. Yeah. I, I had an actual rock racing course on my ranch property. So you know, we broke plenty of stuff at the ranch. We used to have, I had a birthday party. It was for my son and myself and kind of Memorial day. Cause Cody's birthday is this weekend. It's on Saturday. We had a big party one year and just told everybody to bring their crawlers. And it, I mean, it ended up having a rock crawling competition with, you know, big speakers and big party. And there was broken junk everywhere. I mean, people just destroyed their cars. And I, I had a blazer there that belonged to the Falar brothers, I think the thing was there for two years because they never came to get it after they busted it up at that party. Oh, the flying Falarskis. Yeah. Well, that's a good, good times. Well, so there's Eric. What's his brother's name? Ryan. Ryan. That's it. Yeah. Ryan. There you go. Falar. Yeah. Ha. And then those guys in Jeep speeds and, oh man, God, we do have a lot of distance to cover. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, right there. I remember we pull into your place you lived on, was it Noel Lane? Like the road was named after your family. You'd been there so long. Yeah. I put the sign up Noel Ranch Road. <laughs> oh, you did it. <laughs> yeah. But what? we had been there a long time. I think our family was the the third owners. The house was built, I don't know, when there was no Menifee. It was uh, Menifee Wilson was actually the homesteader that built the property. Uh, it was his mining claim that the, the ranch was built on. So I think we were probably the only the third owners and my family moved there in 1972 or 73. Uh, my mom and dad moved out there and there really wasn't anything out in Menifee. So we got away with pretty much murder as kids uh, riding our dirt bikes all over the place. And, you know, I met the uh, McGrath family, I think, in probably 1975 or 76 and just tore our motorcycles up all over that valley all the time we were kids just riding, riding as much as we could. And that's what I was in awe of, you know, being a Kansas, you know, growing up in Kansas and I knew who Jeremy McGrath was and there I am riding around Minifee with you and you're like, Oh yeah, I've, I, you know, grew up riding dirt bikes with Jeremy McGrath. I mean, this is, you guys are talking about like famous race folks that I've only heard of, you know, um, like, like Ivan Stewart, uh, was with you when I met, you know, Ivan, the Iron Man the first time. And it was like, that's Ivan Stewart. Like I, I remember playing his racing game at the pizza hut. Yeah. And yeah. We're fortunate there in Southern California. I mean, it's really the epicenter from, for a while, Menifee was the epicenter of motocross world. A um, bunch of the guys lived there. The who's who of, of motocross there. And probably the late nineties through the two thousands was Menifee. That's where you went. And so you and Angie, you guys, gosh, 31 years. So that backs us up to 90, 1990. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we went to high school together. And then uh and then you guys have a couple kids. They're adulting today. They're w- yep. w- way long gone. One one more than the other. Uh Tr- Trina's adulting a little harder than Cody. He's holding on for it. I can't blame him. Fair enough. 
So, uh, yeah, you've got one daughter. Where did she, so you flew the cuckoo's nest. You guys, you and Angie got out of there. Is she still back in California or did you bail and she bailed too? Or Trina left first. She, uh, she went to school at the university of Montana, never came back. We spent a lot of summers up in Montana at Carrie Steiner's place, her cabin off grid and, uh, enjoyed Montana and, and, Trina was able to make friends in Montana a lot better than she could in SoCal because it's different, different lifestyle. So she just felt like she fit in more in Montana. And so when the time came, um, you know, she applied for schools really early on and was able to get a scholarship, partial scholarship for the University of Montana. And so she left, uh, I think she was still 17 when she headed up to Montana and went to school up there and met a really nice guy. And uh, she's married now and, and has a nine month old baby girl. And they live in Polson, Montana, my uh, son-in-law's hometown. So that makes you and Angie grandparents. How's that? That's right. That's great. Is that a good transition? It is. It's awesome. (laughs) Really awesome. Oh, I I bet that is. I'm uh, not even close to that. I'm actually kind of scared even to ponder that thought of of my kids having kids. So, um, but yeah, wow. Okay. And then Cody, we all know Cody, he's co-drove for folks. He's raced. He's He's a welder. Did he go to fab school? No, he went to the Lincoln electric welding school. Lincoln. Like, okay. So, so he's got pedi- He's pedigree welder, man. I don't, I don't even know how many certs he has. He went in to get three certs and I think he came out with six or seven. Uh, he made friends with the, the teachers there. He didn't have anything to do. He's alone in Cleveland, Ohio, going to this welding school. So he made a deal with them that he could stay after and, and clean every day. And they said, well, we can't pay you, but we'll pay for certs and we'll get you extra training. So he really, he did a great job there. We've got a brand new weld school at Lincoln now, but the old weld school, they had these cinder block uh, stalls for each of the students. And Cody had kind of painted murals and stuff on his. And one of the things he had done with his his chalk was he, he painted uh, shut up and weld. And I went back about, I don't know, a year after he was gone and that was still painted on the wall. And I said, hey, you guys didn't, you know, my kid graffitied the wall in here. You guys didn't clean it up. They're like, oh, no, man, that's Cody's booth. He's a he's that's we're going to keep that on the wall forever. So he he really made an impact back there. And, you know, he's a he's an old school welder as a kid. You know, he, he wants to do everything exactly by the book and right. And that doesn't always play well with uh, some folks. But, you know, he's very process orientated and and you know his feeling is, is if i'm going to weld something that's going to protect somebody's life i'm going to put my name on it it's going to be welded right so he doesn't cut any corners and pretty proud of him he does a great job oh i, I think so i'm a i'm a big fan of cody's actually he beat you on the talent tank not a full episode yeah, I, know. But, but <laughs> I had him on before you know this you talked about perspective you know looking back and or perception let's go my, my words perspective uh perception uh, how you perceive what happened at the event and different people have different stories over the same event. Well, it's like three people can watch the exact same thing happen and you're going to get three different stories. And, or if you have two people arguing, you know, there's at least three stories to those two people arguing his, his, and what actually happened. Right. So yeah. So, yep. so Cody came on, but I remember Cody got out of school and then I think he ended up, did he immediately end up in Florida working on that combined cycle power plant build? No, he came to work at Torchmate for a few weeks or a month or so, and and he would made no about uh, bones about it. He stayed as a temp, and HR was trying to get him to convert to a full time, and he's like, "Nope, I'm a temp, and I'm you know I want to have the freedom to leave at a moment's notice." 
And so my brother works for Floor, and uh, he got him on on that on that job in Florida. They basically called him, I think, on a Thursday and said, "Hey, if you want the job, you need to be here Monday." And uh, he threw everything he had in his little Jeep LJ. And uh, that poor thing was on the bump stops and he drove it across country and uh, started up that job. Yeah. Floor is headquartered right here in Sugarland, Texas. So I, I know a lot of people that work at floor and then that's a, That was a cool project. And I remember when I saw maybe it was on Facebook or Instagram, seeing that he'd landed there. I was like, wow, this is a, th- th- this is a really cool step for him. And so wait, he was down there, what, a couple of years and then came back to California. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Tig welding all night long. So he's got a lot of TIG experience. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably welded a mile of TIG. <laughs> yeah, yeah but boiler tubes and, uh, and all that jazz. Yeah, he's, uh, he's something else. But yeah, so I've got him in my phone. I'll text him every now and then, and I'll hit him up as like a subject matter expert on, uh, on various things like or to settle or resolve or give me some background information. Yeah. He doesn't forget anything. I mean, no. I don't even try anymore. I just ask him. Yeah. You know, I don't even try to remember. I'll just say, Hey Cody, what, what was this or what was that? Cause if you go against him, he'll, he'll call you out. You oh, know, yeah, he's always been that way since he's a little kid. He just very attentive and listens a lot. And, and uh, when he talks though, he's usually telling the truth. He'll text me things like that. Like, Hey, on um, episode, whatever with whoever your facts are wrong. <laughs> well, I don't, I never meant to be, uh, you know, the, the, the keeper of the facts, you know, I, it's my reality. My reality was this and that's how I remembered it. Doesn't mean it was correct. It was close, right? I maybe got us in the ballpark. Close enough. Close enough. So he's down there. You're over in Reno now and Angie, I believe Angie's teaching. She's been teaching. Yeah. She's a history teacher. She's actually very close to finishing up her master's in uh, Western history. What is she going to do with that? Hanging on the wall. I've been asking her that question all the time. I love it. <laughs> oh, oh, dang that, that! But she's a you know she's very passionate about history, especially in these times. You know where the Biden administration's tra- changing up some things. She's really passionate about making sure that the kids know what the true history is, and she's focused on the Western states and the contribution that the Western states made to. Uh, you know the U.S. becoming a superpower. So I mean, she's a wealth of information. Um, I just like to say she's a historian because that's pretty much what she is. She can tell you almost anything you want to know about Western history in the United States. Well, there you go. That brings me to a an interesting analogy I had. You know, re- recently, have you read the book uh, "The Accidental Superpower"? No, I have not. So, I've added to my list. So it, and I'm sure people are like, "Oh, uh, what's this book? Why talking about?" Well. It's basically the the history of the U.S., how the U.S. became a superpower. And despite the Americans' best efforts to totally ruin our place in the world, that no matter how bad we screwed up any of the world wars, we were going to be a superpower based on natural resources. There was no way around it. We really, and, and we did. We have this country. We have a history of many missteps, if we look in history, that should have would have taken down many other countries, but because of our natural resources and our competitive advantage, the accidental superpower was us. It was, it was us. And so this, this came up and I kind of, you know, I couldn't help but draw the parallels to King of the Hammers and, and Dave on this, like despite sometimes Dave's best efforts to torpedo, uh, uh, various things or, or, or various people 
the King Hammers was going to be successful no matter who was at the helm. Now, would it have been as as big as it is today with him or the different alternate reality if it had been you? I have no idea. I mean, I'm just you know throwing spitballs spit at the wall, but uh, but I couldn't help but think about wow, was that location in Southern California in Johnson Valley, and then the timing, you know, the the, the timing of pirate and where we built up this camaraderie where when two that by the time 2008 happened and you end up with 50 racers and then 2,900 racers, you showed up on the lake bed and you knew everybody like I, I'd never met you before. And you picked me up with your truck in Ontario, California, got in and it was like, we were old buddies. I think that, uh, they could probably do a case study on how that worked in the middle of a recession. You know, I, I learned a lot of really valuable lessons from starting King of the Hammers and going through King of the Hammers, people told us we were crazy. I mean, literally, people told us we were crazy. Nobody's going to do this. Nobody's going to build a car for this. You know, you're out of your minds. And, I, and I, one of the lessons I learned is that you've got to be 100% committed to whatever it is you're doing if you want to be successful. You cannot take something halfway. And it worked because we didn't have a choice. You know, I my business closed up. I had to. Uh, I had to make it work. And I, you know, I promised my wife, I said, look, I think I can make a go of this motorsports thing. I, I think I can make money doing motorsports. And we don't really have a lot of other choices because the economy's tanked, the, the construction company we owned is tanked. And you know, I'm gonna go in a hundred percent. And I think that's part of it. You gotta be a hundred percent committed to whatever it is that you have on your plate or whatever target you're focused on. You got to be all in. If you're not, you're not going to get there. And, and I will tell you, I've seen that with other endeavors I've had where I'm kind of half into it, not 100% committed. And it doesn't have the same effect that we had with King of the Hammers. The other thing I would say is it taught me collaboration's key. You know, I practice a lot of the things I hated with my relationship with Dave. I practice those regularly today, which is getting that collaborative discussion going, which is almost argumentative at times, getting de- healthy debates going. But today, you know, I've learned you do it with respect and you leave the emotion out of it. Back then, I wasn't mature enough to set aside emotion and get married to a specific idea. You know, an example I'll give is, is the LCQ. You know, Dave came with the idea of the LCQ. I think today, I think it was the best thing could have happened to King of the Hammers. At the time, you know, it, I didn't think so. And we got a pretty good fight over it. And what became of it, is what you had at that time with the LCQ. It wasn't really Dave's idea and it wasn't really my idea. It was something that morphed from that argument where we took bits and pieces out of it and created a really good product. You know, So those are some of the lessons I think I've learned that have helped me along the way with my career path and, and other things in life is good, healthy debate is great. Let your emotions sit aside. And, and you know, I, I'm only disappointed that I didn't learn that younger. Because I've, I've had some rough rows with some of my partnerships over the years because I've got let emotion get in the way. No, and you're absolutely correct. That'll burn you down every time. It'll burn you where you stand as soon as you get super emotional or even a little bit of emotion on it. No, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want passion to be confused with emotion. I, I think, you know, you used, uh, you know, your, your P word. I have a couple, you know, I I'd like to use uh passion and perspective, you know, with somewhat interchangeably, as soon as you lose perspective for whatever you're working on or working on or working with. And as soon as you lose that or you lose passion, it's dead. Like you said, you, you know, 
what you were remembering and you know, that plays in as well. But when it comes to that emotion, you have to be passionate about it, but there's a place for holding your emotions in check to where you're, you know, anger and elation and kind of those check downs don't cloud your judgment. And we're all, we're just human. I mean, we're human. We're all guilty of it. So at the end of the day, when someone does that, when someone gets, you know, shows, you know, anger in front of me about something or, or, you know, I look at that as, wow, they are really passionate about this. I had underestimated their passion for what we're debating or what we're talking about or what the issue is or what the problem is. I'd underestimated that. Now, I also still think that, you know, I find that to be immature. I think you've, you've got to certainly go down that path of showing of the anger there shows immaturity. And I think you even brought that up. Like back then I, w- I was immature and I don't know that maybe Cody has it at a young age. I didn't have it. I still, I still will get angry about things. And five minutes later in retrospect, I'm like, God, I'm an idiot. Well, the ego certainly plays a part in all of that, right? So that takes a long time, I think, to be able to get your hands around an ego. You got to have an ego if you're going to be involved in motorsports. You, you know, if you don't, you can't. You can't win. You're not going to be a, somebody that's going to compete if you don't have a bit of an ego. It just takes a while to be able to flip the switch and say, okay, my ego is driving this, and this is making bad decisions here. The ego is really the enemy here, not not Dave or not Wyatt or not Cody or whoever you know, whoever you're debating with, and. I actually, in today's world, I, I crave good debate. I crave it. And it's hard to find people that can you can have a really meaningful, deep discussion with whatever the topic is to where you can really get, you know, fired up and then, you know, have a beer together afterwards and still be friends. I, you know, I've got a, a, a friend. I'm not going to say his name, but he's in the industry and he challenges me. On, I mean, I love having conversations with him because he he challenges me. He, he will say, you know, is that really the way you feel? Did you really? I mean, that's that. Come on, man. Really? You feel that way? Really? And then just go, yeah, you're probably right. I, I don't really feel that way. I'm just I, being combative. I, I need to rethink about this. Well, in the day and age, well, you're not on Facebook, which, you know, we'll drop that in there. You are on Instagram, but that's even been a flirting conflict between you and social media there. But yeah, not on Facebook where today, Facebook, if you want to start a fight, man, just get behind your keyboard, man. You know, it was at least back. It felt like in the pirate days, we, there would be some fights, but for the most part, there was like a pretty high level of accountability. Even though we had different screen names, you still knew who big burly naked guy was. And you still knew who Jeep recovery team was. we, We knew each other. And now on, on Facebook, I mean, anyone that sees me on Facebook, well, I don't use my real name on there. I'm Trip Nichols, you know, for Triple Nickel Racing, and it, it it came down to just in my neighborhood. My neighborhood is a very, I should say, a blue, very blue county. I live in a very blue county, and I'm a very red, red guy. And everything can be construed as uh, whatever your perspective is. You're, you you sometimes people make mountains out of molehills. Sometimes they make things out of. It's kind of like reading your horoscope right? The horoscope is, well, it's written to kind of fit everyone. And so when you read it, you're like, oh, they're talking to me. No, they're talking to everybody. It's like a, or a fortune cookie. You know, it's, it's kind of that, like you can make sure you can make it up to be about you, but it was never, it wasn't about you. And, and somehow we're in this, in the spot 
in the life of our country where everything is, it's not about what's real and what's fact. It's about how it makes people feel. And it's about the feelings. Yeah. I miss pirate. I wish we still had that platform. I wish forums were still popular enough that I think that platform lends itself well to those kinds of discussions. I mean, you're not going to have a build thread on Facebook. You're not going to really learn how to shave a 14 bolt on Facebook, but you certainly could on pirate. You know, you could learn how to set up geometry on pirate for a suspension system. You're not going to learn that on Facebook. You're not going to learn on Instagram. It's, it's shallow. That's why I don't like the medium. I think it's too shallow. And, you know, I learned a while back when, uh, I was on pirate that to keep in mind that, you know, communication requires multiple forms that you can't just do it in written word. You you know, you got to have the tone and you got to have the body language to go with it. Social media is even worse. Social media is these little, you know, two second tidbits of nonsense that you may or may not even see because they control the algorithms. At least with pirate, you saw everything you wanted to see, you know, it was all there. You could do a search. I don't know. Can you do a search on Facebook? I don't think so. Maybe you, you can, but it's, it sucks. It's terrible. And then like, if you, it used to be, Hey, I saw that in general four by four. I saw it yesterday. So it's probably, if it's not on page one, because it's good stuff, it's probably about on page three and you knew where to go. Facebook does not work that way at all because the algorithms are constantly shuffling and front end loading and waiting what it wants to show you. So just, and probably because you've now seen it or scrolled past it, it gets knocked to the bottom of the algorithm list. And so you probably will never see it again, unless you happen to remember who of your friend list posted, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then you go find their wall. So yeah, it's, but here, here we are. This is the world we're in. Yeah. When I first started with Lincoln, I used my Facebook as an experimental platform to figure out how I could drive more social reach for Torchmate. And so it, you know, for me, it was a tool I needed to use. I, I don't manage the social platforms for any of the Lincoln products anymore. We got people that do that. So I don't have to be involved in it. So I'm not, you know, that's, that contributed to me leaving. I was, I was like, look, I, I, for me, it was a tool. I could go make experimental posts and see how to get a better reach for myself. And then whatever I could learn experimenting, I could, you know, apply in business uh, but today, I don't really have a, a need for it. I, I do miss being able to keep up with people. I think that's the piece that I, I wish I had more of. But hey, you know, most people know my phone number and I'm just as guilty. I can pick up the phone and call somebody too, which I much prefer over trying to chat with somebody on a IM or Facebook DM or something like that. See, I'm, a, I'm almost a little bit different than that. I And I think there's, I'm not unique in this. And basically, don't call me if it's something you can send me in text. Like that's like, I I find that phone calls, I will absolutely talk to you, but I find that based on, and you're a busy businessman as as well, between a meeting every 30 minutes all day long, you know, a lunch meeting, my my phone is constantly, it's either ringing or it's text messages blowing up. Plus you've got emails and, you know, multiple emails with multiple, you find yourself in a situation where just being overloaded with touch points. So it's hard to get up from a meeting and go have a phone call. It's hard to walk away from dinner and have a phone call. It's hard to, and I think that's probably why like, you know, guys like JT Taylor, Scott Hartman have, you know, I've had conversations with them just in the past week. And what time did we do it? You know, JT was at like 1030 last night. And last week when I was talking to Scott, it was 1130 central time. And so, you know, there's this question of, <laughs> I love those guys. 
man, I, I actually kind of for, for went some sleep to have a conversation with them. That's how, <laughs> that's how important their relationship is to me that if I'm willing to forego sleep to talk to you, you land up there. So I don't know where I was going with that, but it, I do like being able to reach back and stay in touch with everyone. And, and I've certainly, I think it's cool, but I do, I do miss the old platform, but uh, as I digress, anyway, back in the eighties, I'm going to go back to, uh, you and Menifee, you know, you got into off-road motorsports at a very early age. I think your, your dad was into a buggy club. I think you guys spent a lot of time at Glamis and I think you actually had a, a job out there. If I remember my details kind of correctly on you, how far off am I, or did I just describe somebody else? No, no, you're pretty much dead on. I like to tell my kids that I've got an off-road pedigree because I've been involved in, and had the luxury of being around some really awesome people throughout that, that are off-road related. I got my first uh, motorcycle in, I think, 1975. It was one of those little Honda Trail, Trail 50s with the folding handlebars. I don't know if my dad borrowed it from somebody or where he got it, but you know, I was mobbing that thing pretty fast and then jumped on my, my mom's, uh, she had a step through 90 and I was riding that, I think when I was six years old. So, uh, my parents divorced, I want to say around 1980. And, uh, my dad was part of the Looney Dooners buggy club, which, uh, spent a lot of time in Glamis. Uh, my mom and dad both used to take us to Glamis when we were kids. We, I had a, uh, first an RM6, Suzuki RM60, and then a RM80. And, uh, you know, a bunch of ATCs and things like that. But after my parents divorced, my dad ended up marrying my stepmom, Noe, who is uh, Chuck Boardman's stepdaughter. So the Boardmanville Trading Post, we were there when it was a single wide trailer out in the middle of the desert. And uh, they used to serve ice cream and, you know, they'd have a couple six packs of beer and a little ice cooler. And you could go, you know, out in the desert and re- refill and at a fuel tank, uh, fuel tank there. So you get some gas. And, uh, my job was, uh, pump gas on all the major holidays all through the winter. So we'd start going out there sometime before Halloween to get the place kind of cleaned up and ready. And, uh, I would sit there and pump gas every major holiday and most weekends out at Glamis. And, and in trade for that, Chuck used to let us, you know, take some of the vehicles they had there and, and joyride them. So, I think I was probably, God, I, I don't even know if I was 12. I was probably 10 or 11 years old learning to drive out in the Glamis sand dunes in a Volkswagen bus that had paddle tires on it and a bigger engine. I think it was probably a 2110 or something in it. They had all the doors off of it and the wind, all the glass was out of it. And you could pop wheelies in it because it was so light and had a big motor. So my, my brother would ride shotgun and we would go rip the dunes in, uh, in a Volkswagen bus, at, you know, pre-teenage learning to drive. Okay. I know nothing about VWs, but I think I know this fact and back me up on this or not. Was it the buses had the strong transmission? So everyone was after the bus transits. Yep. Ah, yep. I did know something. Huh? You so, did. I don't know, so, yeah, know I where I picked to, that up. I at. got to spend a lot of time in Glamis, uh, you know, through my preteen years ripping around pretty much by myself. I, you know, I never got lost out there. I was able to keep and, you know, you'd keep the chocolate mountains, you know, on your, on your left. And that meant you were going home. And if they were on your right, it meant you were going away from home. So, um, wasn't too hard for me to go out there a lot of times by myself and go explore. Although I did go out one time with my aunt Kelly. Uh, I think she was probably like 19 or 20 and it was a summertime and we had gone out, there was nobody in the dunes and I had a pretty bad uh, get off on my dirt bike. 
And I, that was pretty scary because she couldn't help me. I was down in the bottom of a bowl and we couldn't get the bike out of the damn bowl. So uh, eventually I just did a corkscrew and kept riding circles around the bowl until I got enough speed to come out of the thing. But we never really had too much trouble. Almost like a carnival daredevil, right? Riding around the... Yeah, my my Aunt Kelly, if I remember right, she was famous for wearing like a bikini top and, and you know, cut off shorts. And she was out there in the dunes with no shoes on riding a Honda 185S in the summertime. So she couldn't even get off of the, the ATC because you burn her feet in the hot sand. So she tied her bandana on her on one foot and I had a bandana on. I gave it to her for the other foot. She had made some bandana sandals or something to be able to come help me. Um, <laughs> so when did you guys, so you, you know, run around the sand dunes. When did you kind of get into off-roading and Jeeps and Toyotas and, and, and that world. That was after Angie and I got together. So I had a Volkswagen bug in high school that never ran because I'd go out racing it and break it. And so Angie would drive me to school every day because I couldn't keep that stupid bug running. And, uh, shortly after high school, I sold the bug and I bought a 1985 SR5 Toyota pickup truck, straight axle, EFI, air conditioning, power windows. It was really a, it's a unicorn today. I wish I had that truck today. And uh, that's where we really started four wheeling instead of the sand dune stuff. So I had been a member of a bunch of mini truck clubs in high school. So Styland Minis was, uh, I think, the most popular one I was a member of. So it was a lot of mini truck stuff in uh, high school. But there were these guys that uh, I can't remember the name of their club, but they had these big jacked up trucks. And I just thought that was cool. That's what I planned to do with this Toyota pickup truck was jack it up and, uh, you know, go do the mini truck club thing. But, but I didn't have enough money. I was a poor guy, so I didn't have the money to lift it. So we just ended up learning how to four-wheel drive. And I met uh, Greg Jevney from Safari Guard fame. He later went on to be the D90 guy, the Defender fabricator guy, and, and a gentleman named Roy Dew, who is still a good friend today. We used to call him Rollover Roy. And the three of us kind of uh, taught each other how to go four-wheeling and, and go trail riding. And that eventually turned into more extreme stuff. So we're, is that like a, your incarnation as a Toyota guy? Because I think you're a Jeep guy. Yeah, I'm a Jeep guy. So I still like Toyotas a lot. The Toyota I had for about, I'd have to ask Angie, but I think we only had the Toyota for about eight months because it got stolen. <laughs> the bummer of it is, is that I was actually living in the Toyota at the time that it got stolen. So I was van lifing before van life was cool. It had a camper shell on it. And I was living in the back of my Toyota going between Riverside to see Angie and working up in Ventura. So I I basically lived in the parking lot of uh, the Ventura Yacht Club and would use the bathrooms for the liveaboards. I had a key for the liveaboards and I used the shower and the bathrooms in the liveaboard area and lived in my Toyota. And uh, when it got stolen, it was a bummer because not only did I lose all my tools and all my clothes, I lost my house too. So it was a pretty sketchy time to not have a place to live. And and thankfully, my Aunt Barbara took me in and Angie and I got a a personal loan and we bought our first Jeep, which was, I think we paid 2000 bucks for it. And it was a 79 CJ5. And we actually got married. We left our, our wedding in that Jeep. Do you know where that thing is today? Not a clue. Not a clue. <laughs> I'd be shocked if you did. The vehicle I remember you having is you had a, a Chevrolet standard cab, step side, four wheel drive. It was like silver or gray. 
but it was sun baked, like the tops of the rails. Seemed, that's what my memory. And it had, uh, were they like Alcoa's or mags? It had some, some pre pretty decent aluminum wheels on it. That's the truck I remember you having. I've had a few of those trucks. That truck, that truck was actually Angie's truck. A funny story. She wanted, when we got the ranch in Menifee, she wanted a ranch truck. And what she wanted was like a 69 Chevy half ton, four wheel drive, you know, good redneck truck. And, but we couldn't find one for a decent price. So we found this gray battleship, gray long bed, three quarter ton. I want to say it was like a 78 or 77. And she, she owned it like three days and she got T-boned by a driver in the Hemet and just absolutely destroyed the truck. Thankfully she walked away because it was, you know, a big, heavy truck and a car hit it. And so we didn't have full coverage insurance. So I basically, her dad was a heavy collision mechanic for years. We straightened the frame on it, tossed the bed and I, and I threw those big tires and wheels on it. I don't remember where I got them. We used to wheel the crap out of that thing with no bed on it. It was fun. It was just a beater truck. I'd take it down to the TDS safari. I think one time I put a couch on the back of it and I slept on the couch and would go wheel the notches in that big truck. But we owned a few full-size Chevys. I like those trucks. And uh, we were trying to think about how many Jeeps we owned the other day. I think we owned about 20, 25 Jeeps through the, through our marriage. So I don't have any Jeeps right now, except my wife's uh, Grand Cherokee. And your so maybe that's the secret to uh secret to your marriage is that you guys, if you can survive a Jeep, Jeep ownership, you can, survive anything maybe i mean the kids grew up in the back of a jeep trina my i I took her out when she was really small i don't remember how old she was but i I don't know if she was even a year old maybe she was a year old and she wore all the hair off the back of her head because it was sliding back and forth on the car seat so she had a big bald spot when i brought her home family wasn't too pleased with me about that but trina's been wheeling since she was really small so when in there did you guys have a, you know, when you started hosting rock comps at a Knoll Ranch? I want to say around the winter of 99 or the first part of 2000, my brother and I went to the ARCA event out at uh, Johnson Valley. I think it was the Warren Art Nationals. And we took, I think we took our kids with us. And they kept telling us we had to move. We were on the course. And we're like, we don't even know we're on the course. Like, where is the course? There are people everywhere. And it was cold and windy. My brother and I were sitting on a rock and saying, you know, talking about all the things that were wrong with this rock crawling sport, you know, because we'd always said, hey, if they could make this a sport, we're going to compete. We didn't understand it at all. It was like golf. You know, we just didn't get it. And we sat there and we we're talking about, you know, it'd be a lot more easy to understand if they just put a time on it and told you to go through as fast as you could go through and be a hell of a lot more entertaining than the subjective 1001, 1002, 1003 stop, you know, like point. And you're like, what the hell? This guy's counting faster than that guy. You know, how is that even fair? It's completely subjective. You know, we, we just didn't think it was a good format. So one of those parties that we're talking about, we said, Hey, we're going to have a, a rock racing event. I built a little course at the race at the track. I mean, excuse me at the ranch. And I think we had maybe five people show up. We kind of, I guess you could say that was our proof of concept and everybody had a good, good time and loved it. So we just expanded it and scaled it up and turned it into CRCA. So talk about CRCA real quick. So CRCA was, uh, we only did it, I think for three years, maybe four years. 
And we did at the we actually did at the Wooden Nickel Ranch next the ranch next door to ours because we outgrew our ranch pretty fast. I, we did the first two events at our ranch, and then uh, we rented out the Wooden Nickel Ranch because they had better rocks. And so our whole thing was it was a rock race, straight up rock race, uh, very much like XRA. But we tried to make it entertaining. So we had announcers. Leslie Robbins was one of our announcers, and she just knew so much about the drivers back then. She would do a lot of research. She would uh, talk about the drivers, and we had music going. So it was like a rock concert, and you could pretty much see the whole course from uh, the spectator area. We actually had some bleachers at one time. We had a few rows of bleachers. You could sit on the bleachers and and watch it. And uh, you know, I think our claim to fame was that everybody talks about Tiny and the the shot heard around the world and how they changed the world with that that air cooled Volkswagen rock crawler. But that actually competed at a CRCA event for the first the first time they used it. They competed at our event. So John Bundrant brought it out. I think he might have blown up the engine or something with it because the course was uh, they weren't prepared for the the thing to overheat. But oh wow, it raced with us first. Well, you know, uh, you're talking about the the female announcer. You brought somebody earlier that I hadn't heard her name in a long time was Carrie Steiner, and Carrie was she the first female rock racer or for, first female competitor at KOH? Yeah, for King of the Hammers. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How's she today? She's great. She lives up in Montana. Uh, she's currently on an expedition in Alaska in an RV. She she bought a Class C RV and she lifted it and put a locker in it, changed the gear ratio, and put big tires on it, big bumpers, and she's up driving around in Alaska right now. How fun is that? Okay. Uh, sorry, the tangent. I I made a middle note. You brought it up, and then I you know oh squirrel, and uh, I, I I got off track. So you know you guys are putting on stuff. Uh, you know, the rock crawl events there around your place in Menifee and you met Dave Cole at a CRCA event. So I, I, I do remember that portion, but you get involved. And by the time I end up running around with you in like, Oh nine, you had been involved in some desert racing. Like you had, uh, I think you didn't got involved maybe. And, in, uh, and the reason why I say this is because you had told me how you guys would practice like tire changes and throwing the lug nuts away. And I think that was with Fluger's team. Yeah. Tell me if I skipped a couple chapters here in the Jeff, no life of motorsports, you know, there was Jeep speeds. I want to talk about the 3000 car stuff because I found that to be really fascinating when I came out to, to visit you guys that first time in 09. But how did you end up involved in a, in the desert scene, Go, going from rock crawling into desert stuff? Because at the time there wasn't a middle ground, there wasn't this four wheel drive middle ground. So Bart Dixon, who's probably one of my best friends, if not my best friend, introduced me to Alan Fluger. Bart and Alan actually went to dealer school together. And so they were friends. And Alan, um, well, the truck was still red, white, and blue, invited Bart because he knew Bart had these you know, rock crawlers and said, hey, can you come down and bring this rock crawler? Because we want somebody in Matomi Wash. We need somebody that can get to us if we have a problem. So Bart, you know, said, hey, Jeff, you want to do this? And I'm like, heck, yes, I want to do it. That sounds great. So we started, that was pretty much our job is to get into the nastiest places possible, pre-run those areas in advance. So we understood not only the course, but how do we get in and out without being on the course if somebody needs something? And then we try to post up at the, at any spot where we thought Alan might have difficulty, which was usually a Matomi wash. 
And, you know, most of the time it was just fly by visual of the car. Everything looks great. Cool. You know, we just spent two days pre-running and you just went by and, you know, in 25 minutes when you're out of our range, uh, we can crack beers and have a good time. The downside of that is that it usually took us so long to get back. We didn't, we didn't usually get to celebrate with the team at the finish line because, you know, we'd be out in the middle of nowhere. So that's how I got involved with Bluger. And then, uh, you know, when they, they signed up Monster, fun story, Bart may be a little embarrassed by this, but Bart and I showed up in Ensenada at the Coral Hotel. And typically when we would get, we'd show up, the team would, you know, they wouldn't be in the parking lot. They'd be, everything would be locked up and they'd be doing their thing in the hotel. But this, the first year with Monster, everybody was in the parking lot. And I kind of thought that was odd. And one of the team guys comes running up with just two cases of this Monster Energy drink. And he says, hey, we just landed this new sponsor for this new soda pop. You got to try it. It's amazing. Well, they're all drinking Monster. They're all fired up. That's why nobody was in the hotel resting because they're all amped out on Monster. So <laughs> we didn't know any better. We just, I'm like, man, this stuff tastes great. Bart has one. I have another one. Bart has another one. And around 11 o'clock at night, midnight, I'm like, Hey, Bart, I'm feeling really good. We got to be in San Felipe tomorrow morning. Let's just go to San Felipe tonight. Bart's <laughs> like, heck yes, we're going to San Felipe. So we throw our Monster Energy drink in the back seat. I think we crack a few more. We drive to San Felipe. We get to the military checkpoint and there's it's the middle of the night. It's like, you know, one in the morning, there's nobody there. And they had told us, they're like, just give Monster Energy drink to everybody, you can, anybody and everybody. Just give it away. That's what we got it for. That's what Monster wants us to do. Well, they want everybody to get hooked on it is what they wanted. But, right. you know, we give uh, a couple monsters to the to federales, man, and the or uh, military guys at the checkpoint. And we end up hanging out with those guys for like half an hour, 45 minutes, drinking Monster Energy and chatting with them. And so we went on to San Felipe and uh, our room was absolutely terrible. And uh, we found a guy that we said, hey, if you'll watch the Jeep, you can drink you can drink all the beer you want that's in the cooler. And we got these monster energy drinks. You can drink as much of that as you want. There's waters, but just watch the Jeep for us tonight. Make sure nobody messes with it. So Bart and I come out after, you know, trying to sleep to go do our pre-running. And uh, the dude is sitting in the Jeep. He's got the headsets on and he's like driving it. He's just like, you know, making noises and driving it. And there's like five empty monster cans sitting outside the Jeep. So he was just completely wired on monster hooked him. So we, we just great times down there. So was that with, with Fluger? Was that your first foray South of the border in Baja? No, my parents used to take me down to Canavita Canavina, I think is it called just South of Rosarita, the sand dunes there. We used to go down there with the McGrath family and, um, stay, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It wasn't Caravina, but uh, we would stay down there and, and ride in the sand dunes. And uh, I think they used to have a motorcycle race down there. We would go down there to watch uh, in the seventies. So going from the trophy truck team, w- working with the flying Hawaiian, you got you know, flanged up or you knew, how did you, how did you end up meeting or knowing Jim Knox? Man, that's a good question. Right. I, I met Jim through either through FOJV. That's what I think it was. Or somehow through dust junkies or through Wayne Israelson. I, I, you know, honestly, I don't know because it's a blur. It's, it's but, a blur. Well, so yeah. Who was the car? You know, he raced a class one at the time. And I remember it was, there was, there was like three of them and they had a very specific look. 
who built those? Do you remember? Carl Scanlon. Scanlon. That's what it was. And then that's how we end up segued into talking about the 3000s. So how did the class 3000 thing come to be? And you end up involved in that because you are now racing with a helmet on and you're, you're racing in class 3000, right? That's what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So after racing Jeep speed, I think we might have, I, I think we won a few races. The McGrath family actually introduced me to Carl Scanlon. And, Cause they were friends with him uh, there in Menifee and he was building a team. He was a heavy equipment contractor and, you know, 2008, everything was shut down. He didn't really have anything to do. And so he decides he's going to build the race team. So he builds uh, three of those cars, desert dynamics, I think built those cars and he had a guy prepping them and he would put, you know, try to put people in the car to find out a good race team. So Jeremy actually raced, I raced with Jeremy in those class 3000 cars at Glen Helen one time, had a blast co-driving with uh, Jeremy and was able to uh, race one of them myself at Glen Helen, which is probably about the funnest time I've ever had. I raced against Jeremy, maybe like the second time we raced up there. It was just a lot of fun, good, good, clean fun. And those are great little cars. They're faster than they look Uh, when you're in the car. The one thing I that taught me racing in those little 3000 cars is, you know, you always hear people say, oh, give me a trophy truck and I'll be that fast. No chance in hell. You know, you really got to work your way up because you, there's no, you can't handle it. I mean, that was the fastest thing I'd ever driven. And, and I've, stuff's going by you like so fast. You don't have the reaction time. You don't have time to think about a G out, you know, because you don't see it coming. You better know it's there. You better know where everything is. So you better figure out how you're going to motor through it. And do not lift because that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. When in doubt, throttle out, right? Just pin, pin it, pin it and let it uh, do its thing. So I did. Then I got those things out of order in my head. You got involved in Jeep Speed with Hartman and the the Flar, the Flar Brothers. Go through that. Like uh, I know Lance was involved in Jeep Speed at, for a while with Schaefer, you know, Mike Schaefer up there. He was in Mound House at the time. Now he's out in the Bay Area. But that was kind of the 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 era where Jeep speeds were a thing. Yeah, a lot of great racers started in Jeep Speed. It's a good platform. It's fairly inexpensive considering, all things considering. If you want to win, you're going to certainly spend some money. But uh, I got involved with Jeep Speed with Hartman. I think Bob, a gentleman named Bob Green is the person that kind of got, was the catalyst, if you will, on Jeepaholics.com. And a lot of discussion about building a Jeep speed and going to race Jeep speed. And I think ultimately what we ended up deciding was we were going to build a TJ. We built the first TJ Jeep speed. So I worked with uh, Clive Skilton to try to get that allowed in Jeep speed. And and then Hartman, uh, Mark Underwood and Quinn Moss-Poltz, the four of us went in on the Jeep speed. It was a I think it was Mark Underwood's wife's Jeep or something that we converted. <laughs> so we had four partners in the deal and a whole bunch of friends turning wrenches at my my ranch. It, I think it might have had a dirt floor at the time or maybe I had gotten the concrete by then, you know, working nights and weekends and everything we could to get that thing together to go race at Parker. Putting, I think we were still working on the car and the trailer on the way there and working on the car, certainly in the contingency line. Mark Underwood because he had owned the Jeep, he drew the, the straw to drive it first. 
And Jack Graff from CTM was his co-driver. And I don't know if they made it 13 miles and blew up the engine. Scott Hartman could probably tell you what, what was wrong with it. There was something that didn't get done right or something that happened, but it didn't go very far. And uh, we were all very disappointed. But I'll tell you, it took us pretty much the whole season to iron out the bugs. And people left, you know, Mark, I think we bought Mark out right away. And then, and then Quinn left shortly thereafter. So it was just Scott and I. We worked out the bugs throughout the year. I, you know, we had some decent finishes, but I wouldn't suggest anything great. We had some DNFs in that first year. But by the end of the season, uh, the Henderson race, which, you know, I don't know, maybe five races later, we handedly won that race. And after that, there was really no stop in that team. I would tell you it's more than the car. It's the team. You know, the team by then, Dust Junkies Racing, which you know, has morphed into something entirely different. But by, but by that last race, we knew how to pit correctly. We were super fast in the pits. The car was fast. We had it dialed in. Our prep package was good. RJ Rainey was, was prepping the car. And, you know, it's expensive if you want to win in Jeep speed because the rules are pretty tight. And if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. So you try to shave everything you can uh, for an advantage. And, you know, Ray Griffith, who's, uh, I think, one of the underappreciated drivers in, in desert racing. He, he was racing with us at the time. I can't remember the names of some of the other folks. LaFortune was racing with us at the time. And, and I remember Griffin and LaFortune and I were on a dry lake bed with just wooding the cars. I mean, there was nothing left the cars had. And they were so evenly matched that they, I mean, for miles across the dry lake bed, we were just three wide going exactly the same speed. So, I mean, that's close racing. It's really close racing. And I like that kind of racing because you got to be smart about it. It's, it's your team that's going to get you there. And it's, it's your preparation and, you know, knowing the course and having the notes and doing all the homework that wins those races. It's not just about the guy in the driver's seat. Well, no, no actually, I think it is, you know, well, something about the, the guy in the driver's seat. It's like what, uh, you know, what, what they tried to do with the IROC series, right? It was you know, all match cars and it came down to the driver, right? Who was the better driver? And I think you got it. You got the opportunity to see that or in who was the better team in because of desert, but oh yeah. Ray Griffith, Ray, Ray just won. Uh, he just, he just won an event somewhere. Uh, might've been, uh, the two fifty. He just won something recently though, but I like Ray. I partied with him one time in Lake Havasu and couldn't keep up. Not even close. Like, <laughs> not even close. We were racing class one. And you end up hanging out with some other class one guys and, and he was one of them. And we, we, we partied with Ray Griffith, a great guy. Yeah. So kind of going along that path, you, you did Jeep speed. You, then, uh, then the class three thousands came, I met you now. I can't, I was at KOH 09, but I don't recall us meeting. Like I, you know, it's you're you were putting on an event. And yeah, it's not fair. People come up to me and say, you know, they would say, oh, I met you at King of the Hammers. And I'm like, man, I probably met 6,000 people at King of the Hammers. I can't process all that. True, yeah, true so, story. I'm sorry, but I don't remember you. <laughs> but, so, so you, you picked me up in 09 for Vegas, Reno, and I, I ended up going, we ended up going to dad's. And so I'm circling back to where that story goes. I've told the story before on the show and it's, we spent time working with DSI and putting his his car together you and dsi teamed up on the s&m fab car i think that car later burned if i'm correct i get i get that's, all that, yeah it's that's correct it's back together it lives again is that the one that's nicknamed christine 
I have no idea. Yeah. I don't think so. But <laughs> I, I could. Who knows? It's. I just who know knows? that it runs again. Somebody put it back together. So we go. We go to Las Vegas, and we're at the station, one of the station casinos, and in Henderson, you walk up to the Best in the Desert reservation table, check-in table, and it's uh, R.J. Brown, Chris Pook, myself, and you, and you lay down this packet, and you pull out all the paperwork for Best in the Desert, and this is the, this is the first registering of a 4,400. This is the 4,400 class and the first registration of it. How cool was that? It was, it was really cool, but I will tell you the stuff that led up to that was way cooler for me working closely with Casey on getting the rules adopted and getting the class and having the interaction with him. He was a fantastic promoter. I was at a hall of fame off-road motorsports hall of fame dinner once. And I was in line behind him he turned to somebody, I don't remember who he, he turned and he says, I want to introduce you to the greatest promoter in the United States. And he introduced me and I just was like taken back. I said, Casey, you know, that's not me, man. That's you. And he goes, nah, man, you guys created something entirely new. It's crazy what you guys have done. So I just, I really admired him. I know he was a rough and tumble guy, but I really liked him and the opportunity to work with him and Diane leading up to that race and for him to have the, you know, to believe in these idiot rock crawlers, these rock donkeys or whatever you want to call it, we're going to come out and try to race their, their clapped out junk across the desert for three days. It's fantastic time. I mean, we just so blessed to have worked with people like him. And he threw out a booyah in there. Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. Now for sure. He might've called me a whistle something or another, but right. Yeah. Well, and, and this was the time, th- this era that we're talking about was when people laughed. I mean, just absolutely laughed at us, you know, and uh, I've told this story a billion times because it's, it's a vivid memory was uh, seeing Andy McMillan and he was, Andy was very young at the time and, but he was still a trophy truck driver and, and him pointing and laughing at the rock cars. And, and we were, you know, there was always this, you know, there was a saying like, you know, if you guys could ever be faster than a Jeep speed, maybe you'll have something. Yeah. And now look, yeah. well, look where we're at. It's tenacity. You know, that's what it is. It's tenacity. Like I said a while back, it's people believing in it and, and making it happen and keep pushing it and pushing it. My favorite t-shirt. I, I really enjoyed all the t-shirts we made. That's a piece that I was heavily involved in. My favorite t-shirt of King of the Hammers of all time is the one that says that just happened you got passed by a rock crawler. I, I love that one. And that's, we did that specifically for that event, you know, where it's like, uh, we know we're going to pass some of them. We know, I, I mean, I was racing Jeep speed. I knew, I knew for no doubt in my mind that an ultra four car could be faster than a Jeep speed. Maybe not off the start. Maybe not when we first got them going, but there's no re- way it couldn't be. It was unlimited. Yeah. You know, eventually it was going to happen. And now they're, you know, now they're way up there, but yeah. So, Casey folks, I'm, I don't remember which event it was, but it was, it's a best in the desert. Casey's talking to me. He's like, he's like, Oh, what class are you? And I'm like, uh, you know, 4,400, but I was, I was racing up in class one at the time. And he goes, he goes, Oh, are you Nick Nelson? And I'm like, (laughs) 
I am not <laughs> Nick Nelson. He goes, Oh, well, Nick Nelson came to Parker last year and man, he just put on a clinic. If you were Nick Nelson, I think, you know, I, I'd have to shake your hand. Like he just talked Nick up and I'm standing there like, yeah, man, I'm not, not that fast. I, I, I'm not, I'm not Nick. <laughs> I, you know, uh, yeah. Did he, Nick had gone to the blue water. I think Shannon Campbell had gone there. I think it been Napier as well. I feel like it was the three of them together and Nick, uh, yeah, Nick, Nick put on a clinic in, uh, uh, Jimmy's car that he had at the time. But, and I want to say maybe this was the, the, maybe that was the blue water challenge. I showed up at the next Parker event, the 425, which would be in five months later. Uh, in the next racing season, but, oh, it, it, anyway, as, as, as we kind of worked through that. So you had worked on like a class 3000 rule book. Then now you've worked on the 4,400 rule book. You registered the thing we raced it, man. We had a good time. Our car didn't do that. Great. Certainly told the story about, uh, me pulling the radiator cap off the car at one of the pits on day one and, and blowing. I think you've told that story a few times. Yeah. Because it's the worst because <laughs> Well, it, it makes me look human, right? <laughs> like, like, like I am human, but it also makes me look uh, very fallible, right? I grab a radiator cap knowing full well it's hot and throw it open. And it's not that the water came out. It was the urine came out hot, uh-huh. boiling piss all over everything. <laughs> right. So, so yep. that, that's what we were talking about before, uh, the, before the show, you know, offline, like maybe it's time for, uh, the, the talent tank and these stories and ultra four developed to the point where. You know, they're bigger. The, the whole thing's bigger than me, right? It's, it's currently why it's told, you know, this is the 50th show. This is the 50th big episode. And maybe, you know, it's like Johnny Carson. He hung it up and, uh, and let Jay Leno come in. Maybe I got to find, I've got to find who that Leno is, right. Or, or for, you know, Leno to find Fallon. Like we've got to, you know, I know there's somebody younger with the new stories. I mean, all these guys are making stories at just breakneck pace. Let's usher them in with this next thing. I'd like to be the one to be able to get in my truck in the morning and drive to work and listen to the talent tank and hear someone else carrying the torch. I I would, I think that'd be, I think that'd be pretty cool, but yeah, I had lunch this week with a friend of mine. Who's a promoter was, was a promoter for motocross. You know, I asked him, I said, you know, what do you do in these days? Are you doing promotions? And, and we're friendly. I, I spent a lot of time with him. We got on the subject of promotions. And, and he said, you know, what, what I really enjoy is that I show up to the track in my sprinter van. I wheel out my dirt bike. I go pay my $35 and I sign my waiver. I put my helmet on and I go rip the track for two or three hours. And then I go home. He's like, I don't need to be the promoter anymore. I just want to, you know, I've been given my entire life to the sport. I want to take a little while. And I think he's like 54 and the guy shreds on a bike still. I mean, he, he needs to go race vets. He enjoys getting something back. You know, he's, he feels like he's did his, he's done his part. So yeah, there's no harm, no foul in that. You want to be able to make your contribution and, and then sit back and, and let somebody else drive for a while. Yes. I think there's, there's that. And we're certainly, you know, this whole episode here, we're talking about you and your mark that you've put on King of the Hammer Star Racing, Ultra Four Racing, 4400 Class Racing, what you did in Jeep Speed 3000. But I want to talk about the future and why we are where we are today doing what we're doing today because of your philanthropy. And that's the stance that you took, you know, with Friends of Johnson Valley when, you know, the Marines were looking to take over. At one point, you end up uh, testifying in front of Congress 
I remember sitting at my desk at my office in downtown Houston with the C-SPAN on watching, you know, your testimony representing the off-road community. Walk through that, your perspective on that and in that time of life where we look to lose our hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres to uh, recreation. And you were one of the guys at the table leading the charge on saving. I kind of ended up, you know, I don't even know how I ended up in that spot, to be honest with you. I will tell you that when I left King of the Hammers, as shocked as everybody else was, I was a little bit in shock too, because I had put together a plan to buy King of the Hammers and, you know, go do King of the Hammers. And so King of the Hammers ends and I don't have a job. I don't have, I don't have a plan. I don't really know what my next move is, but when the base expansion started to heat up, I kind of felt like, okay, this is my thing. I I made money uh, off the of Johnson Valley. I made money off the industry. Maybe I can give some of that back. And, you know, even though I don't need to protect King of the Hammers from a business standpoint, I felt I needed to protect Johnson Valley from a recreational standpoint. You know, one of the reasons the race was always on a Friday was because we were terribly concerned that some, you know, nine-year-old, you know, 1979 version of Jeff in the present was going to get hit by a racer just out there with his parents cruising around his dirt bike. So we always felt like, let's pick a time of year when the weather's not so good. And let's pick a day when, you know, people can swing getting a Friday off to come out and check it out. But we don't want a kid to get hurt. And so I've always felt a connection to that. And I just felt like, okay, this is what I need to do is get involved in this. And I, you know, the organizations, they all work really hard. The associations, they're God bless them, right? It's a thankless job. But they don't approach this with like the mindset of a business. They're volunteers typically. A lot of times they're they're retired folks or they do it on the side because they're super passionate about it. And my approach was we got to we got to break the mold. And uh, Orba kind of presented that opportunity, we, you know, to work with businesses and look at this a little differently. Uh, I remember I was with Mike Lasher out at uh, Glamis North, which is a KOA campground with hot springs sitting in his RV. Everybody was out drinking and having a good time in the hot springs. And I was sitting in the RV writing this white paper. Yeah, you know, I I got the book that explained what that battalion training was. I was able to download it. And it was a I mean, it was a lot of reading. And I read the whole thing. I think I read the whole thing two or three times. I got to give a shout out to Kevin Carey because Kevin Carey was the guy that I would call and say, what's this acronym mean? What is this? Like, I don't know what mechanized battalion training is. What is that actually? What is it? And Kevin would just spend hours explaining all this stuff because he was in the military and he he understood it. And so he would dissect it all for me and tell me what it meant. And then I would try to wrap my head around, okay, what's the plan? What could we do that could could make this work? And so I wrote that white paper, I think it was called Common Ground, that was kind of our idea collectively for how could we make this work? And ultimately, Common Ground turned into uh, the basis for representative cook's bill that he submitted so a lot of work a lot of people involved a lot of money uh, ultimately we were able to uh, hire one of the top lobbying firms for military 
in Washington, D.C. I have no idea how they agreed to do it, but they did. I have no idea how we paid for it, but we did. And the whole community really rallied around this idea that we're going to take a new approach. We're going to we're going to explain that, you know, this is an economic impact that we're having on the community by being out there. And if you take that away, the community is not going to get that revenue. And, you know, I'm pretty proud of the fact that a handful of people on Pirate 4x4 created a, a, an <laughs> economic impact study, collected data from all over the world using Pirate. We put that into a document. And that document's in the Library of Congress. It, that's, a, that's a legitimate document that was created by a group of people that just believed in it. Was that also the, the genesis of the, the Blue Star? I think it may have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good question for Lance, but I think so. Did you work with Don Rao on that? Was she involved there? Because I think I'd heard stories that she was, but I have never talked to Don. Don came in a bit later, so... Representative Cook wasn't even in office when we started. Orba, we were actually, I can't, I think the guy's name was like Amos or something like that. There were two candidates because the previous representative who was in forever, that represented the area was retiring. So they had a, an opening, both the Democrat and the Republican were running fair game and we were lobbying both of them. You know, a lot of times when you're trying to save land, you need to spend more time lobbying the Democrats because you probably already got the Republicans. And so I think there's a misunderstanding that, you know, some of the money that gets spent or the networking that happens, you know, somebody may snap a photo of an advocate that's, you know, with like a Dianne Feinstein or a Barbara Boxer or something, and that's taken the wrong way. But that's really where you have to focus your energy You've got to focus your energy energy in those places. We spent a lot of time in Feinstein's office working with her staff to try to get her support for this because we knew we'd have the Republican support, which we did. You know, we had McCarthy wrapped up. That's in uh, Orba's you know hometown, Bakersfield. Uh, Fred's got a relationship with him. We didn't have to go lobby McCarthy. We knew we were going to get his support. We just had to put a good plan together. You need that bipartisan support, and sometimes that takes you got to cross the aisle and go work. In the Democrat side, and you can't do that if you're not respectful and can't go in there like a bull in a china shop. And that's, I think that's unfortunately one of the problems we have with our land use advocacy groups is they're so hardcore conservative and Republican. And then sometimes they come off as combative. You've got to find common ground and you've got to be able to work across the aisle. Well, and you need to get out of your own echo chamber, right? If you're, if you're just want to talk to those that are already on your side you're never going to have that opportunity to either convince somebody to move their stance or they're not going to convince you to move your stance. Yeah. Yeah. I think the tipping point for us was really getting the lobbyist on board and getting them to commit and having that expertise. They had military expertise that took what we had to the next level. You know, they, they looked at the plan and said, this makes a lot of sense. We think we can get this done, but we've got to do some tweaking. They certainly did. They didn't let us down. And I think it was good money. I will tell you, for your listeners out there, I would challenge them. The thing that I'm disappointed in is that we set a precedence with the Save the Hammers. We set the precedence that we created the first congressionally designated OHV area. And I don't think people quite understand what that means. That's like creating a wilderness area. It's congressionally designated. The only way that that can change is by Congress. And there's a precedence. 
And I have not seen yet one other effort to create another congressionally designated OHV area anywhere in the United States. And we missed a golden opportunity with Trump that we could have done that. You know, pick a place. I don't care where. Go pick a place and protect it. Otherwise, we're going to keep being on the defense all the time. You know, the thing with Oceano, I'm glad there's people more passionate than I am about Oceano because I wouldn't fight that fight. That's going to cost a lot of money. We've been in that battle for as, as my entire life. We've been in that battle with keeping Oceano open to OHV. And we spend a lot of effort. We spend a lot of money to be able to keep that place. And my hat's off to the people that keep fighting that good fight. But I don't have it in me to fight the same fight for 50 years. You know, I, I'd like for us to go on the offense. And that's one of the reasons I haven't played nicely with some of the associations is that I don't like being on defense. And sometimes defense is better for them because they can raise more money. But we need to go get on offense and we need to go get what's ours. Protect it. I fully agree with every single word you just said there. That's the sad reality of where we're at here. And for those of us in the non-Western states where we don't have public land the, the way the Western states do, we really don't understand it or grasp it. You know, if, if we want to do an event, it's you've got to talk to landowner after landowner after landowner to put it together. And it doesn't make sense to us. Right. We're like, and then if you go to, you fly into Vegas and you get off the plane and you, as soon as you get out of city limits, you're like, you look around and you're like, wow, you guys, this is just all recreation for you. Yeah. For the most part, it's just not that way in, in any of the Eastern states. So to get support outside of San Bernardino County is rough, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, uh, since I'm on my soapbox, I love it. Keep going. Is, you know, if you want to fight these fights, you got to pay people. You know, I, I feel like I've done my fair share. I've invested my money. You know, that, that was pretty much my job for better part of a year. And I, you know, didn't get really get paid for it. You know, I, I reinvested because I felt passionate about it, but I can't do that over and over again. I can't, you know, I can't put, I don't want to go live in a single wide or something so I can just be the land use guy. You know, we don't, we just don't, I don't know if we, it's not that we don't value those people enough. It's we just don't, we're not attracting the, the right talent because we're not willing to pay them. If you want to volunteer to do the work, you're going to get volunteer results. I think you know, that's a go, fair statement. Go hire some people. And, and I think that's a fair statement to make, not just in land use, but pretty much in anything in life. Right? If you want someone to give it to you for nothing, it's going to be valued at nothing. That's pretty simple. Now, don't get me wrong. I will say that, you know, like King of the Hammers doesn't go on without a lot of volunteerism. Like that event itself does not get pulled off without a lot of volunteerism and kudos to all those people that volunteer. I mean, that it doesn't happen that way, but on a long-term regular basis of consistently asking for volunteers, man, they fit in where they can, but you know, between lives and work and lives and kids and events you know, it's, it's hard to find those dedicated people unless they are, you know, able to feed their family out of that. Yeah. And they got to get a, dis- a decent wage, right? Because it's in my case, I, I was with Orba, I don't know how many years, three or four years. And, you know, they paid me what they could, but, you know, they're not going to pay me what Lincoln pays me. Uh, and I'm not going to have this, the security that I have working at Lincoln Electric. You know, I, that's one of the great things about a job is you, you go get a job that pays you well and has it has the benefits that you're happy with and a security level that meets your needs. But if you're going to go, go be the land use guy, 
or land use advocate, man, you don't, you don't know what, where your next paycheck is going to come from most of the time. And you like to be a punching bag for, yeah. And, and, and oh, for both sides. Yeah. For both oh. sides. You're going to get it from your own people. I, I think that's the most disappointing thing that came out of the save the hammers thing that really depressed me and made me withdraw is that there were people inside of our own organization and industry that were telling me I was a sellout. I gave up no grain of sand. Like, you know, you sold us out and some pretty angry people. After a while, I was like, I'll just never even go back to the hammers again. I was so disappointed in some of that. But the reality is, is that Mark Matthews and I, we had our favorite area of King of the Hammers, you know, not King of the Hammers, but our favorite area of, of the hammers, Johnson Valley. And that's in the base now. And I, I gave up my personal favorite area of Johnson Valley to save the traditional hammers trails because I knew 90% of the people never going to go where Mark Matthews and I would go. They, they're not going to go out there. That's a sad reality, but not the compromise is best, right? Sometimes, you know, if you compromise, if you're, if you're stuck on the ro- set of road tracks and you compromise, right, your choices are to stay on the road tracks and get hit or get off the road tracks and not get hit. Well, if you compromise, you're still half on the railroad tracks. You're still going to get hit. And so compromise isn't always the best thing, but man, I mean, it's, it's hard. And I can absolutely see how you were in the shooting gallery for, for compromise. And that's been the, the thing for me being outside looking in on what I've seen out of the West organizations is the infighting it's counterproductive. And I don't know that I'm not exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. Well, but I would just say your analogy with the train is it depends who you're compromising with. Because if you compromise with the train, then it might be okay to get halfway off the tracks. Because, you know, if you can get him to either slow down or stop, then it might be okay. That's why we're having a conversation because that's a completely different perspective. I've never pondered on that analogy. Depends on who you're negotiating yeah. with. Yeah, see, there you go, outside the box. All right, so we're charging towards a finish here. I've got a couple more things that I want to make sure I get get, get out one of the things I like to go into is kind of, you know, your advice for younger racers coming in or sponsors or kind of that medium of interaction of the, the changing hands of dollars and parts in the racing community. And I know you have an interesting perspective on this and I actually share a lot of this, but uh, what you have witnessed being at a very large corporate that does do a lot of sponsorships that you guys have, uh, you know, that you've had this ghosting issue and elaborate on that. And how, why do you think that is happening in the sponsor space? Where do you think that we need to go to alleviate it? I don't know the answer to the question. I will tell you that, uh, it's an issue. I think it stems back to, back to that perception. I think it's perception of people that are getting into racing that you have to have sponsors. And you don't. You can have a plain white wrapper car at the King of the Hammers. You don't have, it's not a prerequisite to race to have a sponsor on the side of your car. And I think people get the wrong impression that they got to go get sponsors and then build the race car. The race proposals don't make it to my desk anymore, but I used to get them. They're highly vetted. By the time they get to my desk, they're pretty good. And And I will tell you, we can have a separate conversation about you know, execution of those proposals. But, you know, I used to get around October, I'd start getting proposals from people that I have no idea who these people are telling me how they're going to build a car 
race in King of the Hammers and win King of the Hammers. And I should give them money or products because they're going to put my name on the side of the car. First off, know your audience. Do some due diligence. Understand who the right person is and the decision maker is. Those people should have known that the guy that they're trying to you know, pitch was the co-founder of King of the Hammers. And I know damn well, there's like five or six guys in the world that can win King of the Hammers at that time. You're not going to come in there and win it. It's impossible. You know, There could be a dark horse like Lauren Healy, but Lauren Healy had his shit together. The guy knew how to drive. He had a good car. He had a good team behind him. He knew what, you know, he knew how to make it happen. You're going to go build a car in like three months and tell me you're going to win the King of the Hammers. No Who way. Do you think you are Shannon Campbell. <laughs> right. There's not, this is not going to happen. So know your audience, I think is a big thing. And I'll tell you from my perspective, and, and I'm not speaking for Lincoln here. I want to make sure I disclose that, that this is just Jeff's opinion, not Lincoln Electric's opinion. You, you got to understand what the company needs, you know, a welding company like Lincoln Electric may not need their name on the side of a race car. People know who they are. They, you know, they may not want their name on the race car because there's liability. If you hit somebody, they're going to sue everybody on that race car. So you need to understand how can you provide value to the person you're pitching? And in the case of someone like a Lincoln Electric, and I'm just using them as an example, you know, content creation using their products happens in the months before the race. You know, you don't have to go out and fight for uh, media attention at a race where everybody's fighting for media attention. You can do that in the shop in the nine months leading up to the event because that's where the products are going to get used and make that content there. And, and I'm not, I've never seen a pitch like that. Nobody ever has said, we're probably not going to win. We may not even finish, but we're going to go build a car. And, you know, me and Wyatt, we've never really raced before. It's a dream of ours to race in the 4,600 class. We got this old clapped out Jeep and we're going to build it in our garage and we're going to post on YouTube. And, oh yeah, by the way, I don't know how we did it, but we got 80,000 followers on YouTube that are really into what we're doing. That's going to sell that product. You know, I think people get hung up in the fact that they're going to put my name on the side of the race car and I'm going to go out there and nobody's going to see it, you know, you know, and the other thing I would say is part of knowing your audience is understand, you know, let me just back up for a moment, hit the pause button here. Uh, There's like four types of sponsorship in my mind. There's the best sponsorship in the world, which is your uncle Louie, who just wants to see you have a good time and he's got plenty of money and he just wants to hang out and go racing and he'll just write checks. It doesn't get any better than that. That's the best racing. You got the startup company, that's trying to break into the industry that's going to give you some product and wants to prove their product. You know, for a guy starting out, that could be pretty good as long as you believe in the product and you're not going to bounce around from product A, B, and C and you can stand behind the product. You could give that person some testing and some feedback. It's pretty good for a small sponsorship. The third style is what I like to call the Genrite type of sponsorship. It's not a company that needs to break in or get its brand built, but it needs to maintain its brand and its culture. You know, I think Genrite does a good job of that. I think Poison Spider used to do a good job of that with Larry, of maintaining their position and kind of getting their tribes built around them. So that that's a pretty tough type of sponsorship to get because usually the, the business owner is heavily involved in driving that. So you're probably going to be on the coattails. And then that fourth one is the Holy Grail, which is that corporate sponsorship. You know, everybody wants to get corporate sponsorship. What I don't think they take into consideration is that 
a guy, let's just call him Jeff, who has a marketing budget of X, Y, or Z is responsible for that marketing budget of X, Y, or Z. And if he's going to give you that, it either has to be a home run or he's got to get something for it. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be something that's going to help him in his career, or maybe he's just interested in going racing. You know, I'm not suggesting that that's a great place to be when you're in corporate with compliance and things like that, but I know people that do it. But at the end of the day, if I give a dollar to you, Wyatt, out of my marketing budget, the expectation from people above me is that I'm going to get $10 back in sales. And if you can't put together a plan for me that makes that very clear that that's going to happen, I'm not going to take the risk because I'm the, I'm the one taking all the risk in my career. I could lose my job if I don't perform. So when you go and ask a corporate entity, and let's say you're, you're lucky enough to get to the decision maker, the guy who has the purse springs, strings, you better have a really solid plan on a return on investment for him at the corporate level. And you, or you better have a really good understanding of what their want is. You know, if it's just an awareness campaign, like maybe the new Bronco, perhaps, maybe they don't care about a return. Maybe they just want to get awareness and they want to associate with something really cool. Maybe that works. But for a lot of these brands, they, got to, they want to sell. And that marketing guy is responsible to show those sales. And, you know, I see you and jump in there. But the last thing I would just say on the subject is maybe you are selling a whole bunch of the widgets. You better give a report to that marketing guy that says how many widgets you're selling so that it makes it real easy for him when he goes into his quarterly marketing meeting to go report on his performance that he can say, oh, and here's the PowerPoint from Wyatt Pemberton, who just sold 3000 widgets for us and made us, you know, six million dollars. And we gave the guy one hundred thousand dollars and he made us six million. Like you're going to get a check stroked every year. You keep that up. I have two words for that. That is real talk. Real talk. You broke it down. I mean, there's a, there's even a book out there called motorsports marketing, pretty good book, but you just summed up that entire book in three minutes, four minutes. That's exactly where it's at. And I hope people listen to that and back this up and re, you rewind this and go back through it a couple of times, but that's exactly it. Now the spit and polish on their presentation and the details in there. Yeah, that's, that goes a long ways too. It's got to look good. It's got to look professional but you need the content. Once you get accepted, this is the key that I see continue to fail. And it is once you've accepted, once the, the Jeff at the company XYZ gives you the money or gives you the parts, then your job is just beginning. And many yeah. feel like the job is now complete. I get a slap the sticker on the side of my car and you see guys that will literally make the side of the car looked like the back wall of a Seven Eleven in Compton. It just looks graffiti. I mean, you're graffitied up because they see the guys that actually have the corporates and they want to emulate them. I'm not, I'm not saying people want to be like Lauren Healy, but people want to be like Lauren Healy. People want to be like Shannon Campbell. They want to be like Shannon Campbell. They're going to put the stickers on. Even if the sticker was just given to them in contingency, they don't want to look like an outsider. They don't want to look like they don't have their stuff together. It's been very cool. Refreshing to see guys like, I, I haven't seen it in a while, but like Michael Bergman, Michael Bergman came in with his new car, white panels, nothing. Mm-hmm. There was there, no sponsor, anything on it. And because that was right, you know, it's the whole me program, right? He's yep. the, the, the number one sponsor is, is, is me. I was always very serious about keeping minimal stickers off of my car because I didn't have, I didn't have any real 
real true sponsors like that. Like, you know, certainly had some partners and guys that jumped in and helped on my car, you know, like, like a mass motorsports. They absolutely, I, I paid full boat for my motor and harness and all that, but they supported fixing things and they were good guys that took care of me. And so, yeah, I, I put a sticker on my car, but on the flip side, God, I mean, if you roll through, you know, tech contingency, you can easily add another hundred stickers to the side of your car. And, yeah, and, and every time you do, you diminish the value of the ones that are on it. That's right. And not just the ones on your car, but the ones on everyone else's car. So when yeah. you and, finally go and make your personal pitch, brand, you're diminishing your personal brand as well. When you're diluting it with all of these stickers that might pay you $25 in contingency. So people should think about that. So I learned that. So I didn't have to learn this lesson. I already had this mentality, but I had a, a shop that got, I mean, this is easily 10 years ago. I was buying a, uh, an axle truss for a 14 bolt. And the guy says, Hey, uh, if you'll run my stickers, I'll, I'll ship it for free. And I was like, I was, I was like, well, you know, how big's the sticker? I'm thinking, you know, like a little four by six. I think shipping was going to be like 25 bucks at the time. It was really nothing in the grand scheme of things. I agreed. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Throw the stickers in and we'll wave, wave the shipping. The stickers showed up. They were seven <laughs> by 30 fluorescent <laughs> orange. <laughs> And they, the only place you could put them is the dead center on the door because they were so big. And I felt offended. Like I was totally offended that the company thought that that's what they were going to get for a worth. free shipping. That's what you were worth to them. That's right. And so I, I called the guy. I was like, man, I owe you for shipping. There's no way I can do this. And I paid, I paid him the 25 bucks for shipping. Like, like just don't, don't offend me. I mean, like that was, that was offensive and it is know your worth and don't give your worth up for, for nothing or for free or for even negative return. You don't have just because you have the stickers on your car that you don't have to have the stickers on your car. It doesn't make you, it doesn't make it go faster. It doesn't add horsepower. It doesn't mean you're going to avoid that rock on lap three. It's yeah. There's, there's a couple pieces of advice I'll share that are just, you know, take them for what they're worth. They're free. Right. The first one is, is if you don't have any sponsors and you're new to racing, find out who the title sponsor is, find out how engaged they are. So I'll use uh, Griffin Radiators as a, as a example. If you know they're going to be there and you know there's TV coverage and it's likely that they're paying for that TV coverage, go talk to, if you have no sponsors and you want to, you want to get some value, go put the title sponsors stickers all over your car for free. Because you're likely going to end up on the TV show because, you know, there's not going to be another car that has only stickers of the title sponsor on the racetrack. Make sure everybody knows, go hustle, go talk to whoever you need to talk to at the place and make sure they know you're going to be the, the Griffin car and get some TV coverage, get your name out there, build your personal brand. That to me, that's a fair trade for stickers on a car. If I have no sponsors, that's what I'm going to do because. I can, I can have them say, there goes Jeff Knoll, man, first time racing in the Griffin car, number 4405. He's out there. Get your dumb. That's a pretty good <laughs> Miles Hasequist impersonation. That was no good. doubt about it. Yeah. No, so, but, and along those lines, you're, you're a new guy. Go create a, a one pager or a post, not post note, but like a, you know, a, a postcard size cheater with a picture of your car uh, on one side 
your, your, your head, your face or whatever, and some little details. And when you walk, you, you only need to make one of them or two of them actually for a small event, but maybe 10 of them for KOH and you go hand them to miles and Pam and Ian and Scott rain, and you go hand them off so that, yeah. and they're going to remember that. And so when your car comes up on the big screen or your car comes up on the TV, they're going to be like, oh man, that's uh that's Billy Bob Jones. He's driving the blah, 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 because you just spoon fed them, spoon fed them the information of who you are, where you're from. And that's, that's advice for the new guys. I mean, everyone knows what Lauren Healy's car looks like. Everyone knows, uh, you know, what Horschel's car looks like, like these guys have built brands over the years. So they don't have to think twice about, it. you know, what a bomber car looks like now. It's like, which, which bomber car is it? Is it Randy or is it not Randy? But if you're a new guy and you're coming in, go do something along those lines. I mean, think, think out. Well, now it's not outside the box. I've now thrown it out to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give away one of my other secrets. I, I, you know, when I was racing, I used to get my sponsorship at off-road expo. Like many people will walk around with their proposals during the show. I didn't do that. I thought, you know, these people paid good money to be at the show. I, you know, now that when I do shows, I don't want to have people coming and trying to pitch me during the show. I'm here to sell. I paid a lot of money for the booth. I need to sell some products to be, to pay for the booth. But what I used to do is two things. I would go to people like, uh, I'll use Jim Reel as an example, because I, I like Jim a lot. You just go to somebody like Jim Reel and you buy them lunch and you just say, Jim, take a break. Here's your lunch. Go sit down for a minute. I'll man your booth. That will go so far with that small businessman that they will take care of you for a long time. When you just offer them to, because they can't get out of their booth to go to lunch, they probably don't have somebody there to help them. They may not even get a bathroom break and they're talking nonstop for 10 hours a day. Go buy them lunch, give them a break. Just go give them a hot dog or a hamburger or a sandwich or something and say, I know your product. I'll take care of it. Go sit in the corner over there and enjoy your lunch for a minute and then show them, you know, the product, you know, let that guy see you sell and hustle that product. Cause then he's going to be like, heck yes, Jeff, anytime you need a drive shaft, just call me. Cause I know that you know my product and you're going to support me. The other thing I used to do is just open a beer tab in the bar at, at night, work the bar and buy people a whole lot of drinks. And you know, then they'll remember you. That's yeah. the guy who bought us drinks. <laughs> definitely the next day is they're cussing you for the hangover. All right. Yeah. Uh, as we close, the, close that chapter, I've got two more things that I want to get through with you. The one is simple. It's something I've added very, very recently is, uh, Hey, what's your top three songs that define Jeff Knoll today? Oh, Jiminy Christmas. That, I can't answer that. I That's have no not idea. A song. Jiminy Christmas isn't a song. <laughs> I hate Christmas songs, by the way, but I've never heard one called Jiminy. That, that's a that you got me stumped. I like music a lot. I listen to music nonstop, but I I couldn't even tell you. I listen to all kinds of stuff, so sorry on that one. So, what's your thing that you are you listening to? Some NPR today on your drive? Are you listening to what? What is the? You turn it on and you either zone out or it gets you in the mood. I don't. I'm working from home. So, and, and admittedly, I'm working way too much. So I don't have as much time as I used to. But I will tell you, the, the thing I, I'm uh, enjoying is that new Clubhouse platform. I'm enjoying that because it's very real and raw. I listened to it the last two days, three days, actually. I've listened to it. I, I try to take a break and either go for a run or a walk or something. And uh, I listen to, I, I, I don't want to get overly politicized, but I listened to on the anniversary of 
George Floyd's death, I listened to a group that was talking about police reform. It was a bipartisan group of just average, regular Americans. It was enlightening to hear, you know, how would they fix police reform? And it wasn't what you would expect. And it was a very diverse group. And it really got me excited and made me feel like, you know, whatever, regardless of what we're seeing on the media, average Americans don't think like Fox News and CNN. No, average Americans think somewhere in the middle. And I think, you know, what what we all want is we want them to do work. We don't want them to go up there and be stuck in a rut of, well, we're Democrats and we believe this and we're going to go crazy and swing the pendulum really far. And on the, on the flip side is we're Republicans and we're going to swing the pendulum really far on our side. We want people to do work and come up with meaningful legislation and solutions to our problems. And that group on Clubhouse was doing that. They literally were writing down a list that one of the people on there was in Washington, D.C. And he says, I'm literally going to start walking this through the halls to try to get somebody to adopt these ideas. That was super exciting for me. Uh, the flip side is I listened to one today for about a half an hour. While I was eating my lunch where they were talking about sales and it was, uh, you know, one of these sales guru professional professional guys that were role playing. And, and I thought it was great. You know, there were some people completely bombing their pitch and he was eating them for lunch. And then there was some other guys that would come in there and just bomb him. So it's a neat platform. I don't know where it all goes, but I, I think it's neat just to hear strangers discussing topics and you can lurk or you can get involved, whatever you want. So that's kind of what I'm into right now. Okay. That, that, that's fair. I think those are good. An- I think those are good answers. I am. Um, I struggle with clubhouse. Like we we've used it. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, I've used it for this show for the, uh, the bench race sessions before events, because I think it's the really a good platform for that, but I haven't been able to embrace the other stuff. Um, I, and maybe because my, everything I'm listening to in the car while I'm driving, doesn't really, uh, I guess, play into that for me. But anyway, I, I do think it's, I do think it's a cool platform, uh, but funny, I saw something from, uh, it was Buzzsprout recently that, that was like, is clubhouse dead? And I think my hangup with clubhouse is kind of anyone can start a room. And if they're kind of the first mover on it, then they become like a self-appointed subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that leads people the wrong way, but I'm not, I'm not willing to debate that. The last thing I want to get out of you, the last thing is current life, Jeff Knoll and Angie Knoll, what you guys are currently doing and about to do, because it blows my mind. I think it's amazing. Walk through, tell us, tell us what you guys have up your sleeve. All right. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of big. And, uh, some would probably say that it's uh, risky. I don't think it's risky. And, and, uh, others might say we're having a midlife crisis. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't, but you know, it back in October, uh, right at the end of the October, my, my wife's brother had a stroke and uh, he survived it, but it's been pretty rough on him. And in that time, two other family members had medical issues that, uh, within 30 day period, that kind of was like a shot of, Hey, you know, we're working way too much. My wife has been studying nonstop. I've been just hammered down with Lincoln uh, and doing a home remodel in the process. Right. So I've been remodeling the house, this damn house for about six years. So in, I don't know what's today, Thursday. So in about five days, we're going to list our house for sale and sell it. I want to take advantage of the market. 
I, I feel like uh, I've read this book before and it's a Shakespearean tragedy. Everybody's going to be sad at the end. So I want to try to get out of the market before that happens. Take my chips off the table and take a little break from the real estate. And uh, Angie and I are going to move into our RV and go travel around for a couple of years. I think that's a lot of fun. And, you know, I just had, you know, Jeremy, you know, uh, Dickinson on and found out that he kind of did similar when he moved to Texas, he bought a big uh, toter home and parked at one place. And then if they decide to go wheeling or do a race, he just climbed in the driver's seat and away they went. So when you told me that, and I just talked to Jeremy, I was like, wow, that's pretty fun. And, you know, I just had uh, Kyle Seglin on. That's kind of what Kyle did. Kyle sold all his worldly possessions, piled it in a Toyota RV and drove to California with it. You know I mean? Just like I, I couldn't do it, but I absolutely am going to live vicariously through you guys and, and, uh, and be following your adventures and be like, God, man, that gypsy lifestyle, you know, it's, it has a, a calling. We don't know if it's going to be for us or not, but we wanted to do something to shake up the snow globe. You know, we got, you get in a rut in life and COVID has been tough. I didn't leave the house, uh, you know, except for maybe 20 times in a year, you know, I think going to home Depot was a treat for me. And some of that was my obligation to my job of, you know, trying to stay healthy and safe. And regardless of my personal feelings, about all of it, you know, sometimes you put that aside for your career and you, you just adopt what's best for your, for your role. We needed to break it up. You know, I'm fortunate that I'm in a position where I can do this. I know not many of my colleagues are, so I'm going to take advantage of it. And, you know, it may not last for as two years or who knows. I don't know what's next for me in my career path at Lincoln Electric. They may tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, we need you to move to God knows where. And I want to be in a position to take advantage of that. So, you know, if the economy starts to soil, it gets a whole lot harder to sell your house and you can't just up and move. So that's that's contributed to it. My wife's a little uh, disappointed in some of the policies in schooling. So I think she's ready to take a little sabbatical and a break from teaching for a little while until this kind of settles down. And we need to go have some adventure. So I think Barbara Rainey, for those that know Trail Mom, she coined the term the Knoller Coaster. And so we're going to embrace the Knoller coaster and uh, just shake up that snow globe and see what happens. And gain some perspective and rekindle the passion, right? Yeah, we're good there, but. Oh, I didn't. I, well, <laughs> <laughs> I you you uh, went there. I've been like I, towards I, professional life I, and outlook I, on life, I, I, but together. Okay. Hey, what happens between cl- behind closed doors? That's, <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, we just, a lot of our older friends and our, and our parents have said, you know, go do this while you're young enough to enjoy it. Because if you wait till retirement, then you, you may not be able to go enjoy all these things. So Angie's got about 18 months of uh, spots reserved and picked out and itinerary taken care of for us. And, you know, we're going to get to go do things that we haven't been able to do. Like we're going to be at the Mint 400 this year. We're going to be at the Parker 425 this year. We get to go to King of the Hammers this year. You know, those are things that we haven't been able to do because of my wife's schedule or my schedule or stuff. We're in the lining. It's not easy, you know, when you're a teacher to get time off to go spend a week at King of the Hammers or even 10 days. Right. So we're going to we're going to have the opportunity to do some of that. We're going to go see some pretty awesome places we've wanted to visit. We're going to go visit some friends that we haven't seen for a long time. You know, we're going to go to different areas where a lot of our friends have moved, like the, down to Utah. 
you know, Zion area. We're going to spend some time there where we've got a lot of friends that have all moved there and um, go explore around and we'll see where we land when it's all said and done. I suspect we'll probably land in Montana next to our grandchild, but uh, we're going to go check it out and see what's out there. Yeah. Don't go getting uh, used to that uh, RV out there. I'm going to take it with me when I leave here in three months. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, th- man, thank you so much for, uh, for being such a good buddy over all these years and, and graceness and coming on the town tank and telling your side of, uh, you know, the last you know 10 years for sure. And, but really the, the rock sports, uh, story from your perspective, did we cover everything that, that you want to get off your chest? Did, did I leave anything out? You did. And I'm going to be the guy who says you did. Cause everybody always says, no, we're good, man. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Let's talk about my truck at the, uh, Vegas Torino. Let's talk about some fiery Cheetos and uh, pistachios. <laughs> wow. You know, just friends are fleeting here. Oh, Lord, man. Okay. So I know your version well. Um, so this truck you picked me up in Ontario, it was a new Super Duty at the time, right? It was pretty new. Yeah, it was pretty new. It was yeah. a nice truck. I think Woodley was the one that said, man, you used to have a nice truck. I think that's what he said. Something like that. And then he proceeded to mow down several hundred rabbits. Yeah. The, suicidal the bunnies. rabbits. That was good times. But uh, the piece that I didn't tell everybody, I did embellish the story. I will admit that for the sake of entertainment, because it sounds it's so good. much more fun that, that it had pistachios and fiery cheetahs. I don't, you guys ate those things, but they weren't everywhere. Like I embellished, but you know, the piece that I did leave out is the, uh, the smoked EGR cooler and the smoked turbo because it was a six liter. And we, I think we wrung that truck out at Vegas Torino because it it went to the shop afterwards. (laughs) It was never the same. Terrible. Yeah. uh, So I I don't remember pistachios, but I spilt a bag of sunflower seeds in the driver's seat. That was, (laughs) that was me. But I thought like I got them all picked up and kicked out and dumped out. And then the fiery Cheetos, I don't remember there being Cheetos in the truck, but I'm not going to say they weren't. But the the worst part was that I personally took that truck to the car wash and washed it right before in Las Vegas before the race. So you guys would have a pristine chase truck to drive. And we we just I brought that thing back in the funk that it's it stunk so bad, like man funk in that cab. I, it took me months to get that out of there. Remember when we picked you and RJ up, you'd broken down on the backside of a mountain range and it took us like an, two hours to get to you. And then two hours back, but we're riding three wide. Cause there's four guys in the truck. Plus then you and R, uh, RJ Brown get in and you guys have your fire suits tied around your waist. It's August. In Nevada, it's 132 degrees in the shade. We stink. We're sweated through. And you guys are in there. You know, we're, again, three dudes across in the front, three dudes across in the back. You guys don't have shirts on. So we're sweating. It's like skin on skin sticking to each other. It was gross. It was terrible gross. People are snoring. Oh, man. Yeah. uh, It was bad. And I I did. I, I got your truck stuck in like silt with a trailer hook to it and Woodley that's, that's the Woodley, Woodley goes Oh, stop, stop trying to dig to China. <laughs> like I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I think we're stuck. He goes like, what gave it away? Like we weren't moving. No, 
I couldn't see, like the dust was so bad around us. You couldn't see that we weren't moving. And I was like, I don't think we're moving. At least like, like what <laughs> gave it away, dude? <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I sunk your truck. And then, uh, I can't remember who it was. They, it was some, it was some females, some women, they pulled up and, uh, they sent strapped us out of there pretty quickly, just popping. We were on our way and away we went, but yeah, your poor truck. And we did, we tried to t- take really good care of it, but we're four big stinky dudes sweating it up and it just, it just, it went. Yeah. When you, when you leave the road in the Nevada desert with a trailer behind your truck and a race car on it at like 50, 60 miles an hour, the bad things could happen. I mean, and that's what was, it was just like, well, I'm just going to drift off the road and see if I can hit some rabbits at like 60 miles an hour. I don't remember it going down like that, but that was Adam Woodley driving at that yeah. point. That was Woodley driving. Yeah. Woodley. If we had an audio recording of that, but he's like, and what's up with all these suicidal bunnies? <laughs> like, yeah. no kidding. They would just run out that we'd see them on the shoulder and then they just run out and we get mow them over. It was yeah. a bunch. That was really, really crazy. Uh, the vultures ate well. The coyotes ate well. Yep. Well, well Jeff, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on your 50th episode of the Talent Tank. Well, man, thank you. Thank you for being the the finale for the spring season. And uh, thanks for all the work you did, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago uh, at the infancy of this thing that we're all chasing still today. Well, I'm still looking for that next new thing that'll get me exciting. And hopefully I can get back out and see some racing and maybe even be part of a team someday. So thanks again. Appreciate it, man. We'll catch you later, Jeff. And on that note, we're out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the talent tank or our website, the talent tank.com.